great to be back at Sailorville. I, I haven't seen this building. Uh, this is my first time in this building. And as Pat said, I uh, attended here when I was in college a long time ago and did an internship and just uh, have such a, so appreciated the ministry of Sailorville all these years. Uh, it got me started in one sense in the ministry, doing an internship uh, with Pastor Pat. And I just learned so many things and go back to a lot of those things that I learned in those years. We had a great time. Uh, that was back in, I mean, you were just brand new uh, as pastor here. And I remember you hadn't been going very long and I came up and said, can I do an internship with you? And he's like, well, got to get my feet on the ground, but we'll see. And so it was fun because those early years, you were starting to kind of change the culture here at Sailorville. And I got to see that firsthand. And it was a great experience for me and an opportunity to learn and grow and kind of develop my own uh, thinking about pastoral ministry. So I have been a pastor now for 18 years. Uh, I started when I was 12. Um, <laughs> so I was uh, a very smart child, I guess. No. Um, brought my son with me today. I've got two other kids back home, but this is Elijah. If you want to stand up and say hi to everybody. <laughs> nice job. That's, that's, that's what you call obedience the first time right away. I appreciate that. That's, that's more than my wife does when I ask her to stand up in these <laughs> scenarios. <laughs> so, um, the MacArthur book is good. Uh, I'll probably give a, another book recommendation or so. Uh, MacArthur, how do you study the Bible? I, I guarantee he will not say go home, so uh, just know that. And, the, and that's really blowing up, hasn't it, that whole MacArthur thing? But his, his materials are really good on these subjects, uh, so you can gain a lot from that. I made uh, some notes for you. You have that in front of you, and I made them very complete, so I'm not going to necessarily cover every word, but it's at least there for you for a reference uh, to go back to and to look at uh, what, what we're talking about here today. Uh, some of the, some of a subject like this uh, can sound boring, but obviously we've filled up the tables here today. I, I was concerned that I would come and there would be about four people uh, who really love God, but it looks like there's more of you that love God today, so this is great. I mean, just think of the points you're getting in heaven for coming out on a Saturday morning, amen? Uh, we love to weave in that Roman Catholic theology every time we get a chance to. Um, no, that's, that's not how it works, is it? And Pastor Pat's faithful to tell you that. Uh, but it, it can sound a little dry or boring, but I, I, I can assure you that uh, these subjects and what we're going to talk about really is applicable, and uh, you run into it more than you think. So how many of you uh, have any interaction or regular interaction with anybody that's Catholic? Let me see your hands. <clears throat> All right, lots of you. How many of you have ever, now this may be a stretch, I don't know, how many of you have ever run into somebody that goes to Lutheran Church of Hope? <laughs> wow, I'm surprised. Even, even here in the Ankeny area. So they're, they're all over the place. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about how you interact with people that are from these different backgrounds um, and why they believe what they believe. I, I'm going to kind of tell a story a little bit as I go as well. I had an opportunity to sit down and have a meeting with the lead pastor of Lutheran Church of Hope uh, about a year or two ago and just talk about some things. Uh, I had emailed him about a sermon that I heard. I was concerned about something that I heard, and he emailed back and set up a meeting. And so I, I give him credit for that and sitting down to talk. But it was so eye-opening just to see the differences uh, between us 
in them and, and why they do things the way that they do things. Uh, and, and that's the, the case with a lot of different types of churches as well. And it helps us to know why people believe certain things. Uh, sometimes we have a bad habit of looking across at other people and wondering why they believe things and immediately assuming that they're idiots. You know what I mean? Like, how could they believe that? I mean, don't they, don't they read the Bible? You know, or you're like, I bet you they've never seen this verse before. No, they've seen it. No, they have the same Bible that we have, right? And they read the same verses, but it's a matter of a lens. It's a matter of consistency. It's a matter of seeing things in a certain way. So if you look at your notes, uh, I use the illustration here of board games. So I do want some interaction here today. And, and so if you just would uh, talk a little bit, I'd appreciate it. And you don't necessarily have to raise your hands, just call out answers. But when you get ready to play board games or card games, how do rules help you play the game? This isn't a trick question, I promise. You know when somebody's cheating. That's right. It's cheating to, to baptize infants, amen? No. Yes, you know what the end goal is, the object. When you read the rules of a game, usually that's right up front, isn't it? Object. What's the object of this game? It's to get all of the pieces at the end of Candyland. Okay? That's the world that I live in right now, that highly strategic game called Candyland. Or what is it? Shoots and ladders, right? That's a favorite our house. Pop the pig which, by the way, you can count and know exactly when that's going to pop, if you've never <laughs> known that before. I shouldn't have told you that. You know my secret now. You didn't know that, did you? You did? Okay. Other, other ways knowing the rules helps you play a game. Okay, yeah, how to win the game. What else? What if you approached a game and every, everybody made up their own rules? How well, would that, how well would that work? It'd be very confusing, right? So knowing the rules keeps everybody on the same page. An agreed upon set of rules keeps us all working together and understanding where we're going with things. Uh, so I, I would think of it too like uh, card games. So you have a deck of cards. Are we allowed to talk about decks of cards in a, in a <laughs> Baptistic church? Just had to, when I uh, when I started Bible college, the rule was still in the rule book that you're not supposed to play at the deck of cards. Um, in at the Bible college, the Bible college the right? Yeah. <laughs> are you guys familiar with that school? It's up in Aiken, anyway. Um, but the reason why they had that rule is because a deck of cards can play lots of different games. Uh, what what games can you play with a deck of playing cards? War, Queens. What else? Rummy. What's that? Bridge. What else? Fish? Poker. I'm not familiar with these terms. I, I, I try to stay in holy things. No. Okay, lots of different games with the card game. So you have two people that come, and, and one person's planning on playing poker, and the other person's pla planning on playing blackjack. All right? How's that going to work if two people come to the table, and they're each wanting to play different games? How's that going to work? So the one person would accuse the other person of not understanding the game right. Uh, you'd lay down a card. you say, well, that's not what that card means. It means something else. No, it means this. No, it means this. And you could argue back and forth. But each of them are right in a certain way. 
So in blackjack, the cards mean something different than they do in poker, okay? But it's all about how you were viewing the game and what game you were playing. Such is the case with biblical interpretation. Uh, you can be very consistent and not believe what we believe. You know? So I, I would encourage whoever it is out there to be consistent with what, with what they believe. And so that's what we want to try to do a little bit is to, is to understand the rules of the game. What are, what's the game that some of the other churches or the other theologies are playing? Where, where is it sourcing from? And how is it that what they're doing makes sense? Okay, So that's where we get into this idea of categories. Now I'm going to use some words here today. Maybe some of you have not heard these words. Uh, maybe some of you have heard these words, but we're going to just talk about some words and the first one is dispensationalism. Now, you could cross that out if you want to and write the word premillennialism in if you want to. Okay? Uh, I, I would use those almost interchangeably, dispensationalism or premillennialism. The reason I use dispensationalism is because that better describes where I sit as a, as a pastor and theologian. Uh, that would probably describe as well where Pastor Pat sits and most, most of the staff here at Sailorville, if I were to guess, all right? So what comes to your mind, or what do you know about the term dispensationalism? What's kind of the first things that come to your mind when, when you hear that term? What's that? Church age. Church age, good. What else? Okay, law versus grace. Now, interestingly, you say law versus grace, What's that? Law and grace? Is that, is that an issue that's specific to dispensationalism? Okay. Uh, who is it that's done the most work on law versus grace? To Jesus. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a safe answer. It's a safe answer. Now, if you really want to gain some points, you'd say Dr. Myron Houghton. Uh, but the Lutherans have done the most work on law versus grace and have the best stuff out there, and they are not dispensational, in, which is interesting. What else do you think of when you think of dispensationalism? Okay, good. Relationship between God and man. Getting some good stuff here today. What else? Okay, good. What else? Yes. I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to say charts and graphs and <coughs> <laughs> reading, reading Revelation through a newspaper, you know, that kind of stuff. That, that's what I hear a lot. You know, people say things like that. Oh, you're a dispensationalist. Oh, so you've been reading your newspaper, trying to read the, read the news into the, into the Bible? No, that's not what I do, right? So sometimes uh, that term has been given a bad name by some uh, weird dispensationalists that are out there. What do you think of when you hear the word premillennialism? What does that mean? Before the millennium. Thank you, Sherlock Posley. Other, other things, premillennialism. Yes, Jesus comes back 
before the millennium to set up a kingdom. So premillennialists believe that there's going to be an actual kingdom for a thousand or so years on the planet. Okay? So if you are dispensationalist, you are premillennialist. If you are premillennialist, you're not necessarily a dispensationalist. But I would argue that most premillennialists are, they just don't want to admit it. I'll give you some specific names later. Other things that you think of with premillennialism or dispensationalism. All right, think of the rapture. Is it absolutely necessary to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture if you're a dispensationalist? I don't know. We'll see. I'm taking the view of being a pan-millennialist. Whatever pans out is fine with me. I'm just going to forget about <laughs> studying it. That's what a lot of people believe and think. A lot of people just dismiss this stuff. I don't know if you've noticed when it comes to eschatology or end times, people just say, well, it's just not that important. We just need, you know, we need to really focus on what's really important. But I'm here to tell you this morning that it is important. Now, we're not, we're not going to be doing a study on eschatology today, but I want to show you why it's important for today and not just thinking about what's coming in the end. What do you think of when you hear the term covenant theology? Who said that? There you go. Infant baptism. Good. Are all covenant theologians baby sprinklers? <laughs> Maybe. I had fun teasing my neighbors because they were getting ready for their child's baptism, their you know, baby baptism. And so I, I just played dumb. I'm like, so what are they, like does the, does the priest plug the kid's nose when they put them under water and stuff? I was just asking, I kept a straight face. They're like, oh no, they, they just kind of sprinkle some water. Oh, oh, huh. So that's what you call baptism, huh? And I was just kind of playing along. It was fun. My other neighbor asked me, so why don't you guys baptize babies? And I said, because it's not in the Bible. And we have a good relationship. And he, he was just like, then why do we do it? I have no idea. Go <laughs> ask your pastor. I was hoping at some point for another conversation on that. All right, covenant theology, what else do you think? God acting first on our behalf, I think you are talking about the doctrine of predestination. Possibly. Okay. Okay, yep. So that is doctrine of predestination, that God ordains and, and chooses uh, people for salvation. Now that's very true. Are all covenant theologians Calvinists? Do you want to take a stab at that one? Okay. So we got two different ways of saying it. Are all covenant theologian Calvinists or all Calvinist covenant theologians? We'll talk about that one too. I've got a spot later for that. It's a good, it's a good question. That's why this is important because these terms get thrown around so much, you know, covenant theology, Calvinism, all that. 
and I, and I don't know if we really understand what, what they mean when, when we're using those terms. All right, anything else for covenant theology? Continuity. Yes. Yes. Yeah, covenant theology focuses, focuses on continuity between the Testaments. They would claim to, to be the most consistent with that. That's good. All right, let's, let's go on. Uh, so these terms, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you have to have a label. Uh, you have to have some kind of a term that describes you. When we say these terms, it usually brings up kind of an immediate reaction. Dispensational? I'm not a dispensational. You know, what, what is that? You know, it sounds, sounds weird or covenant theology. Uh, but you've, you've got to have some distinctions. You've got to have some lab- labels do help us. They help us understand what we believe and why. Uh, somebody quoted this and said, No matter how heartily we may sing the old song, every promise in the book is mine. Anybody know that song? It's like an old song. Uh, every promise in the book is mine. No matter how somebody might sing that, the fact remains that some promises are quite specifically the promises for somebody else. <laughs> and we must seek to honor the divinely inspired intention of the human author of the text. So, in other words, what that quote means is not all the promises are ours. So how do you know what promises are yours and what promises are not yours? And you see this a lot. Uh, what do you, you think is one of the most famous uh, Bible verses that's emblazoned on mugs? Jeremiah 29, 11. Hey, man, you guys, that's why you're in the front row. You, you're like <laughs> tracking, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, it's a great verse, but in the context, I know the great plans I have for you, you know, and we latch on to that. Amen. I love, I love that verse. I love to think of the great plans that God has for me. You know what those great plans that God had for those original people that he wrote that to? To stay in captivity until they died. Those were the magnificent plans that God had for those people, okay? So take that and apply it to your life, right? <laughs> Whatever sucky situation you're in right now, it's going to be like that till you die. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11, praise God. <laughs> okay, so knowing who the promises were for and why and how does it apply to us, okay? That's why labels help us. That's why this knowing the rules helps us. So let's look at some of the various puzzles of the Bible and why we need rules why we need to clarify the game that we're playing in order to understand how it all fits together. So I, I wrote this all out for you so you don't have to, I, I usually do fill in the blank, but I thought we're going to go fast today, so I just gave you all the information. So between the Testaments, there were distinctive ways of dealing with adultery. How were you supposed to deal with adultery in the Old Testament law? Stoning. And we're not talking about the favorite activity of people that live in Colorado, right? <laughs> talking about stoning somebody. How do we deal with it in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Such were some of you. And restore a man that was in terrible uh, sexual sin. Restore him in a spirit of understanding and grace to the assembly. So... It's a different way. How, how, do you, how do you make sense of the different rules? Um, have you ever read through the Old Testament and just been a little bit scared? 
Have you ever read through the Old Testament and, and thought to yourself, you know, I'm just going to kind of keep this hidden from the people I'm trying to win to Christ? You talk to an unbeliever and they say they started reading the Bible in Genesis and you're like, you know, I think I'd go to John if I were you. <laughs> maybe, maybe start somewhere else. Like you don't want them to get into the middle of Exodus and, and talk about festering, oozing boils and sores and, you know, adultery and things like that. Interestingly, the prescriptions that we have in the Old Testament sound very much like the prescriptions that you find in the Quran. And, you know, as Christians, we're like, those crazy Muslims, you know, they're violent and stuff. There's a lot of similarities to what you find in the Old Testament to the Quran. How, how do you handle that? So Brad said covenant theologians claim continuity. Now, how much continuity do you want to have between old to new? I prefer to see a little stronger dividing line between old and new personally. And that makes me feel more comfortable. Other ones, how do you handle murderers? It's been different ways. So Genesis chapter 4, who's that talking about? Cain. What did God do with Cain? He let him live, right? Genesis chapter 9. God says, change of rules. If you kill somebody, your life's going to be taken. And I'm giving the sword to government to do that. And we see in Romans, it talks about the government having the sword, bearing the sword. What does that mean? I, I think it's clear it means it's capital punishment, that God gives a government the right to enforce capital punishment for murder. Uh, but it's not our job anymore. You know, God put that in the hands of, of the people, of, of his people in the Old Testament, but now that's, that's changed. How do you deal with the dietary laws of the Old Testament compared to the New Testament? Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. Eat all of the trees. Eat of all the vegetation. You can have any vegetable that you would like. And if I was standing in the Garden of Eden on that day, I'd be like, come on, come on. Look at that cow over there. So juicy right eat just vegetables after the fall happens genesis chapter 9 verse 3 this is later with noah god says i've given you anything anything to eat any uh, animal to eat then we get to leviticus chapter 11 with israel suddenly there's some food lots what aren't you supposed to eat under the old testament law pig what else Owls, crustaceans, yeah, fish without scales. How many of you love shrimp, right? Lawbreaker, right there. Yeah, Old Testament law, you're not supposed to eat shrimp, all right? So it becomes very restrictive. Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision, and he sees all these animals coming down, and what does God say? What, what, what's, what's the better translation of that? Peter, cook up some bacon, baby. And what does Peter say? Uh, not so, Lord. I've never done that before. And God says, no, you don't know what you're missing. I mean, this is good stuff. I'm starting a whole new movement of barbecue restaurants and Smokey D's and everything else here. Like, th this, is, this is good stuff. How do you explain the dietary laws? I know people that abide by Old Testament dietary laws because they don't understand the rules correctly of how we see the Old and the New Testament. And, and going back to what Brad said, 
the whole continuity thing versus discontinuity, I prefer to see a stronger wall between old and new because I love bacon. Can I get an amen? Right? If there's not that wall between the Testaments, it does get confusing on how much you should carry over in the New Testament. I don't think people that do the Old Testament dietary laws are crazy because they're seeing the rules differently. There is a way to be consistent with that. Uh, I think it leads to more inconsistencies, but there is a way that you can view the Bible like that. Uh, holidays. Well, let's, sorry, I missed one. Marrying close relatives. Genesis chapter 2, you used to be allowed to marry one of your siblings. And don't you wish that was still like that today? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, love, I love going through this with new believers. There's, uh, we use the book Stranger on the Road to Emmaus, and there's this little box that says, where did they get their wives from? <laughs> and it's this great moment with new believers or unbelievers. They're like, what? <laughs> you serious? Yep. But later... What does God say? Leviticus 18. Have you ever read Leviticus 18 before? It's a weird chapter. And, and, and God just says it to the people. And, it, and my question is, why did he have to tell the people that? Right? The reason why? Because culturally, stuff like that was done in their day. So it says, don't marry your sister. You can imagine someone taking notes. Oh, okay. No marrying sisters. Okay, I got that. Oh, that's a bummer. You know, I, I don't know what they thought. Don't marry your aunt. Don't marry your father's wife. You know, all these different regulations in Leviticus 18, making the rules more stringent. Uh, so in Genesis chapter 2, that was available. You come to Leviticus 18, and God calls it an abomination. You know, what changed? By the way, according to the Old Testament law, marrying cousins is still okay. First, first or second cousins. So uh, the people in Arkansas are safe. I just want to <laughs> give you that. Uh, holidays, Jewish holidays. I had a guy in my church come to me. He was uh, being evangelized by somebody at work who believes in a lot of Old Testament law stuff. And he says, I got to talk to you because I, I think we need to celebrate all the Jewish feasts and festivals. Oh, oh my word, who, who have you been talking to? This, this guy, he's a new believer, he's trying to figure out the Bible, and someone at work's trying to evangelize him into some of this Hebrew roots stuff. You've heard of that, Pastor Pat? There's a lot of, that's kind of a growing movement. So we began to talk, and I brought him to Colossians chapter 2, where it says, don't let anybody judge you in terms of days and, and feasts and Sabbaths and things like that. You, you celebrate what God's led you to celebrate, as long as you can honor God with it. The Old Testament, what does God say? If you don't honor the Sabbath, what's going to happen? Like, like that, that, was, that was like death penalty. Like you, you honor the Sabbath or you're done. You're cut off from your people. I mean, it's a very serious thing. So you see these rule changes. And then we've got circumcision. Genesis chapter 17, you must circumcise or you're cut off from your people. That's probably the wrong use of the words there. Um, that wasn't intended to be a pun. Circumcise or else. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, Paul says, it doesn't matter. Circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. So, huge change between the Testaments. Um, this is just kind of a point for you to think about. Um, I know this church, our church, we, we would say that a homosexual lifestyle is not what the Bible teaches, but sometimes I hear Christians using Leviticus 18 to prove that. Let me just plant this in your minds. If you ever want to... Uh, talk with someone about that subject of homosexuality, do not use Leviticus 18. 
Why should you not use Leviticus 18? Yeah, lots of other stuff in the context of Leviticus 18. So if you want to use Leviticus 18, then also be prepared to not wear clothing with mixed fibers. How many of you have a polyester cotton mix you're wearing today? Right? I guess you could have been more biblical in the 70s when you were wearing just polyester, some of you. Leisure suits, right? Uh, but there's all kinds of other things in the context of Leviticus so if you're going to use that verse, you've got to be consistent. So I don't even use that. I don't even reference that verse. You, know, you can go to the New Testament for that. So that kind of gets to the point of some of these rules and, and how that works. So let's even look inside the New Testament. Uh, just for sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn to these verses, but you see things change even inside of books of the Bible. You look at the uh, book of Matthew. I just read this the other day in my Bible already. Matthew 10, verse 7. Jesus says, go out and preach. Go evangelize. And here's the message you're supposed to say. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's, it's coming soon. It's almost here. Jesus tells his disciples, go proclaim the kingdom of heaven and heal the sick and the blind and the lame. So that was the commission to the disciples. Is that commission still the same today? Benny Hinn would say yes, and I say no, right? It's not the same commission. It changed. So Jesus tells his disciples, go proclaim that the kingdom of God is going to come soon. It's, it's at hand. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 starts to change a little bit. He talks about his impending death. Peter didn't know what to think about that. And then Matthew chapter 28, what is the commission? For them and for us, go and what? What's the word? Matthew 28, go and make disciples. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Go and make disciples. We're not preaching anymore the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, it could be. We don't know. Uh, I hope it is. I hope the kingdom is close. But we don't know that. Uh, so you see a change just even in the book of Matthew. Uh, you see a change there in Matthew to Luke, distinct preparations for ministry. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples, go out and don't, uh, don't take a bunch of things and turn the other cheek and, uh, you know, instructions like that. And then it comes to Luke chapter 22, and he says, things are changing. I'm leaving now. Uh, the kingdom of heaven has been now delayed. So you need to bring supplies. You need to prepare. In fact, one of the things you, you should bring is a sword. How do, you, how do you bring those two things together? That in, in one text, Jesus says, turn the other cheek, be, be a passive person. And then he tells, in the other hand, pack a sword, get ready to defend yourself. And we know that Peter took Jesus seriously because soon after we see Peter in the garden, right? And what does Peter do? Peter, you're a terrible swordsman. You were aiming for the guy's head. <clears throat> and you got his ear instead. All right. Any questions up until to this point? Feel free to ask any question. If I don't like your question, I'll just ignore you. Anything? Yes. Yep. So he says in Matthew 10, he says, go out, you know, same, same kind of command, go and preach. Uh, but he says in that context, go and preach just to Jewish people. <clears throat> and he gives them a specific message to say the kingdom of heaven is, is here. It's close. So He's telling them to preach to Jewish people that the kingdom is close, which knowing the Old Testament, 
the, the response that they were hoping for would, would be acceptance, repentance, and acceptance of their king to bring the kingdom. Matthew 28, we don't hear anything about the kingdom at that point. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all, of all nations. Now, it's not just a Jewish people. Something's changed. Any other questions? Okay, uh, we got about six minutes before break. So let's look at the setting of the rules with the unifying purpose of history. So setting the rules for understanding the Bible is more than just kind of figuring out these puzzles. It's really about a view of what history is all about. And so the two major systems, covenant theology and premillennialism, or you could say dispensationalism, that, that's what I would say because that's what I believe, Covenant theology, dispensationalism, it's not just that we have different rules for interpreting Scripture, it's that we have a different viewpoint of what history is all about. We have a different view of what God is doing between Genesis and Revelation, of how history is, is moving and where it's moving to. We see different destinations. How does a, dis how does a different destination change your travel plans? This isn't a trick question. <laughs> What's that? Oh, it changes what you pack. Right. So let's say you're going to go on a vacation next week to Anchorage, Alaska or Orlando, Florida. Which one's your choice? <laughs> How do you pack differently? Yep, bring shorts. If you're going on a trip, uh, to Dubuque, Iowa versus Manila, Philippines. What's going to change in that trip? Cost, for sure. Yeah, what else? <clears throat> What's that? Passport. What else changes? How you get there. Right? You, you may decide not to drive to the Philippines, potentially. Okay? So what cha if the destination changes, how does that change the way you get there. Everything, right? Changes everything. So what I'm trying to say, so covenant theologians say this is the destination for history. We say, no, this is the destination for history. And, and we're over at point A and this is point B. So the way you get there is a lot different. Okay? So that, that's why sometimes these systems have such differences because we're just, we're just talking about two different things. We're talking about two different, different destinations, different ways of getting there. So let's look at uh, a philosophy of history. What is a philosophy of history? Through time, man has made different attempts to deal with the issue of meaning in a systematic, organized fashion. You could call that a philosophy of history. Uh, there was an author named Carl Loeth. He said, A systematic interpretation of universal history in accordance with a principle by which historical events and successions are unified and directed towards ultimate meaning. So not just what the destination is, but how you're getting there and how you unify that process along the way. That's what a philosophy of history is. So how do we develop a biblical philosophy of history? Well, if you're talking about what is a philosophy of history, what does it need? Here's what a biblical philosophy of history needs. One, it must contain an ultimate purpose or goal towards which the fulfillment of history moves. Okay, so if you're going to say what's the purpose of history, philosophy of of history. What is God doing from Genesis to Revelation? Your first 
step in that is to figure out what that destination looks like. Two, it must recognize distinctions or things that differ throughout history. So you got to be able to explain the changes. So some of the stuff we just talked about. Why did the food laws change? How did they change? What does that mean for us now? Etc., etc. Three, it must have a proper concept of the progress of revelation. So as you look at a biblical philosophy of history, you see a progress. Revelation doesn't mean the book of Revelation, but a progress of revelation meaning God released more information as time went by. I'm preaching through the book of Job right now. And it's interesting thinking about Job and listening to his theology and remembering that he did not have a Bible. That not even the Pentateuch was written. Now, where was he getting his information from? And how much more we have today, how much more we have today than the Old Testament saints in general, right? So there is a progress of revelation. God releases more information. And then along with that, how, how do you view that release of information? Does what, come, does what comes next, does that supersede what came before? Or does it all stand on its own? Do you interpret it as, as its own thing, or do you take what came later and change the meaning of what came before? All right, I'll explain more about that here in a few minutes. Four, it must have a unifying principle which ties the distinctions and progressive stages of revelation together and directs them towards the fulfillment of purpose of history. So it's all got to kind of tie together and move to this destination in a way that makes sense. All right, I'm sure that as you were uh, at break that all you were doing was pondering these spiritual things and these questions in your mind and wondering about them. So do we have, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, do you have any questions before I launch into this next section here? Questions? Yes. Yeah. You're talking about the sword, um, but on the other hand, you know, that's kind of in contrast to turn the other cheek. And could you, if you're not going to talk about it later, could you just extrapolate a little bit? I might like which way. Right. Like, turn the sword or turn the other cheek. Right. Yeah. And uh, Matthew Matthew five is the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You know, the Beatitudes and stuff, and and Jesus gives that command of turn the other cheek. Don't don't retaliate. Um, if you look at the context, it seems to be fairly specific to a, a kingdom viewpoint. You know, Jesus is saying the kingdom is, is at hand, and he's kind of telling what life's, life's like in that context of the kingdom. Uh, and then in Luke 22, he's trying to prepare them for what life is going to be like when he's not with them anymore. So you see Jesus doing that a lot in his, in his latter time there at the end, is preparing his disciples, hey, Things have changed. Uh, the kingdom is not going to be established. I mean, I say changed. I'm speaking in human terms. God never has a plan B. He always has a plan A. But uh, he presents things to us in ways we understand. So sometimes you hear in the scriptures, God sounds like, well, I guess we're going to go with plan B now. You know, and it's kind of a way to explain it so it makes sense to us as we read it. Um, but there does seem to be a change. Jesus says, life, life when I'm gone is going to be different now. And it's actually appropriate to, to have a sword. <clears throat> so, and, and just because it's a question, the other thing I would say, 
just to buttress that would be that you know, you know Captain Mike's not saying don't pay attention to the attitude. There's certainly uh, benefit all scripture is profitable, right? Second uh, Timothy three, regardless of what nuance or dispensation or whatever you're looking at. And the other argument would be that the argu argu argument I would make is in that context, Matthew five, that's a personal thing. On a personal level, you should be able to turn the other cheek proverbially and forgive and all that. Yes. But from a governmental perspective, Romans 13, uh, you know, you could be violated, whereas you turn the other cheek. But that doesn't change the law that was impacted, and the law might have to mete out punishment, capital punishment, imprisonment, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Luke 22 is not giving us the license to be the crazy gun dude that you all know somebody like that. Uh, and it's like, they're not going to get my land. You know, they've got a bunker in their basement. And that's, that's, you know. But on the other hand, I, you know, every Sunday I, we've got, I don't know, 50 people or more that are packing heat on a Sunday. Maybe you have that as well. Um, you know, security team. Uh, there's somebody in our church that's, that sits up front that's assigned to me. That's their job. And if somebody comes in, I'm going to get tackled. So usually the person that volunteers for that job is someone that uh, has an issue with me because they're, they're, they're hoping, <laughs> they're praying somebody comes in so they can come and blindside me. Uh, but it, I... I didn't even know that. Someone told me, like, you know, you know that guy that always sits? There's several of them that sit right here. Yeah, that, you are their assignment. If somebody comes in, their job is to get you out of there. So, you know, is it appropriate, based on Matthew 5, turn the other cheek, is it appropriate to have a security, a safety team at, at your church? And I say yes, because uh, I don't want to die, right, from a crazy shooter, but it, it's appropriate because Jesus isn't here. There is not perfect justice on this planet. There will be someday, uh, but there's not now. So, yeah, raise your hand if you're carrying it. No, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> oh, you are raising your hand. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for outing yourself. Yeah, what I mean by God doesn't have a plan B is that none of us, we can't ruin what God's, you know, God's like, well, they screwed it up for us. I guess we're going to have to go to plan B, you know, that type of thing. Even though it sounds in the scriptures, you know, it's like, why did I make these people? You know, why did we ever create? Let's, let's wash them all away with a flood and start over again. You know, it sound, that was his plan A. You know, that was inside of his decrees from before the world began. Yes. It's uh, re the apocrypha. Yeah, the the in between the testaments. Yep. That is a great question. 
and uh, not inside the scope of what I'm supposed to teach today, so I'll let uh, Pastor Pat do a class on canonicity sometime. <laughs> How does that sound? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Next Sunday sermon is going to be out of Second Maccabees. <laughs> the Maccabees were the family that established the restaurant Applebee's. If you didn't know that. <laughs> All right. Re- no, that's a super good question. Uh, but that's going to take us outside of, of this. So that's fine. I'm t- you can ask any question, but I, I'll I'll keep it I here. It, it could. I'll give you that. <laughs> But I'm not going to answer it, so. Okay, <laughs> anything else? Okay, let's go on to the next point in the notes there. How a developed system sets the rules for the game. First of all, it answers the need for biblical distinctives. So you set the rules, you got a system, a developed system. It helps us handle this, the changes, helps us handle the distinctions. There is no interpreter of the Bible who does not recognize the need for certain basic distinctions in the scriptures. Every interpreter of the Bible uh, sees the need for some kind of distinctions. So non-dispensationalists deny making distinctions. So as Brad, I'm going to keep coming back to what Brad said, that uh, the non-dispensationalists, the covenant theologians see see this continuity idea, okay? But even... Even at their best, even you know the continuity, they still see distinctions. Uh, after denying, no, we're not dispensationalists. After denying that, they go on to make their own schemes or dispensations. They just don't call them dispensations. That's all that word means. Dispensations. All it means. Pastor Pat used the word is an epoch, is like a an administration. So each of you in your homes, you you have a dispensation. Uh, you have different dispensations in your homes as it relates to your kids. Uh, the rules for my son Elijah at age nine are not the same rules as they were when he was two. Why did the rules change? It's because he's matured. You know, he can he can get up on his own now. Whereas when he was younger, we have these alarm clocks that turn green, and they can get out of bed when they turn green. If you have kids, I just gave you an amazing, helpful tip here today, okay? It's wonderful. Don't get out of bed till your light turns green. And we have those clocks to turn green at 11 a.m. It gives us so much time together. But at some point, the dispensation changed. So I'm using that term. The administration changed in our home where he was able to read a clock and get up on his own without the light turning green because that's all that means dispensation the administration how how the rules shifted so even people that claim oh we're not dispensationalists no you every bible interpreter is a dispensationalist to some degree because they're making different rules uh there's a guy named burkoff who is a covenant theologian great theologian good guy to read he's he reduces the number to two that there's two basic distinctions old testament dispensation and new testament dispensation he even uses the word dispensation but then in the old testament he divides it into four subsections so he's trying to be this great continuity guy there's only two old testament new testament but in the old testament there's four different ways that divides up all right dude let's just just admit it you know just let's use the same language here 
Uh, I like this phrase, anybody who doesn't sacrifice animals or who doesn't worship on Saturday is a dispensationalist. You are, if you don't sacrifice animals. I was uh, talking to an unbeliever. We were doing a study together, and we were reading through, in that book, The Stranger Book, uh, the, the Old Testament section on animal sacrifices. It spends a lot of time talking about the animal sacrifices, and we, we came together for a meeting, and he sat there. He had this awful look on his face, and he's like, hey, I got to ask you a question. Before we read any more of this book, I got to ask you a serious question. Where's this going to go? You know, with an unbeliever, you never know where that's going to go. He says, do you guys have a room in your church somewhere where you're sacrificing lambs? (laughs) And I I wanted to laugh, but he was dead serious. And I'm like, no, no, we we don't do that. Um, Occasionally, maybe a cat, but definitely not lambs. (laughs) Okay. And all that, all that is, is, is me trying to swerve to hit the cat and not miss the cat. That's what, that's what you call that, you know, like uh, animal sacrifices for today. Uh, no, we don't have a room where we sacrifice animals. But going through that, it, you know, as an unbeliever, that was very serious. Like, do you, do you guys still do this? It's creepy stuff. So if you don't sacrifice animals, then you are a dispensationalist to some degree. Let's go to this goal of history. Uh, so this is, this is how each of the systems view. So point A to point B, and the rules determine how we get there. The destination changes the route you take. Uh, this is something I've been working on for a long time. I started uh, doing a doctoral study back in 2007, I think, at Trinity. It took me a number of years to finish that, but my, one of the emphases that I studied there was premillennialism, and it got my mind in this whole arena. And it, so for the last 10 years, I've been trying to process this and think about these things, because what I notice is there's a disconnect. Uh, a lot of the old language that's used to describe this stuff just doesn't, it doesn't ring true for today. So I've been trying to update language to, to put this in terms that make sense for us today, uh, because I do think it's important. Um, and I, in that study, I came to understand that the idea of the kingdom is the key. That is the, that is the whole key to all of this stuff. That's the whole key to understanding the Bible, to understanding what God is doing from point A to point B, what's happening from Genesis to Revelation. If you're a premillennialist, it's the kingdom. That's the whole key. Unfortunately, in our, in our world and in Christianity, the term kingdom is used and misused all the time. People just throw that word out there all the time without really thinking about what we're talking about. Um, it, but it is very specific. What the idea of kingdom means in the Bible is very specific. So a dispensationalist, or you could say premillennialist to some degree, a dispensationalist, the goal of history is establishing the millennial kingdom on the earth. That's the goal of history. That's where everything's moving towards is that thousand year reign when Jesus is here on the planet ruling this planet. So that's the specific end to which all the events and the people groups in history are moving. As God puts all the chess pieces together on the board from Genesis to Revelation, his intent, his strategy with every move on that chess board is to see that kingdom established on this planet someday. That's the whole intent. That's the purpose of all the people groups. That's the reason for Israel. Okay? Now, <clears throat> the reason why that's so important in, in viewing the scriptures like that is because 
Here's a term for you. I don't know if I have this written anywhere in the notes, but this is the term you can write down. Um, one of the books I read a uh, number of years ago was called, uh, I lost the name of it. Anyway, the author is McLean, Al Alva J. McLean. Somebody help me with that. What's, what's its kingdom? Something kingdom. Greatness, Greatness of the kingdom. Doggone it. Man. I had you all thinking I was really smart. Now I just showed you what's actually going on up here. The greatness of the kingdom. He used a term that stuck with me. He uses the term mediatorial kingdom. Mediatorial. Okay, that's from the word mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. Let me give you a different word that would kind of relate to that. A steward. a manager, an administrator. Okay, you getting the idea what that means? Mediator, steward, manager. So when I say a mediatorial kingdom, let me describe it like this. Again, this, is, this has helped me more than anything in the last 10 years of the study of this stuff. When God created this planet, do, do you believe that God is the sovereign ruler of the universe? Yes, absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign rule. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. When God created this planet, he set the rules for this planet to look a certain way. When he created this planet, he is the sovereign ruler of this planet. Amen? That's absolutely true. But when he created this planet, he created Adam and Eve. And he gave Adam the right to rule this planet. Genesis chapter 1. What did God say? I'm giving you rule and dominion over this planet. Take dominion of this planet. So Adam's job when he was created was to rule this planet on behalf of God. So what you call that is a theocracy. What's a theocracy? Theocracy is God rules. Was God ruling this planet? Has God always ruled this planet? The answer is yes, God has always ruled this planet. But for the planet, the rules God set up for this planet is this planet was designed to be ruled by a mediator on behalf of God. So God ruling through a steward, through an administrator, through a mediator. That's how God designed the planet to operate. This planet does not function right. It does not function the way it was designed to function unless it's in that system, unless that's functioning properly. Adam was the ruler on behalf of God of this planet. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Oh, Shaggy. <laughs> that's my Scooby-Doo impression. It's awful. The fall. And what happened in the fall is that Satan tricked Adam to abdicating his rulership of this planet. And so now, this planet is still set up to be ruled by a mediator. The mediator, in a sense that's ruling, to some degree, is Satan. Jesus calls Satan the God of this age. That's from the mouth of Jesus. The prince and the power of the air. So get this straight now. This is very important. God is administrating his rule on this planet right now in some senses through 
Satan. It sounds weird, doesn't it? Job chapter 1 and 2. Did God decree all of that bad stuff to happen to Job? As you read through the book, I've been studying in some of the latter chapters. Job says it in Job chapter 26. It says God decreed all of this and he's going to do this again sometime in my life. Job says God decreed these things to happen. God was in control. God is culpable for what happened to Job. But did God, did God do it? Was it by his hand? It was, through, it was through the hand of Satan. So Satan's on a leash. He doesn't have total reign. But there is a very real sense in which the mediatorial ruler right now, that Satan has a high level of control in ruling this planet. Does that make a lot of things make sense? When you look around this planet, do you see the direct rule of God here? Or do you see that things are kind of screwed up? What, what do you see? No, it's, not, it's not running the way it's supposed to run. Right? So, as a premillennialist, I see the purpose of history, Genesis to Revelation, is God fixing what went wrong in, in the Garden of Eden. God restoring this planet to what I'd call the mediatorial rulership, a, a, a man ruling the planet on behalf of God. That's, that's where history's moving. That's what God's trying to bring about. So God's trying to bring about, again, a man to rule this planet on his behalf. Now, wouldn't it be amazing somehow? See, Adam messed up because he was human, so God doesn't want it to mess up again. So wouldn't it be interesting if somehow you could have a man who was ruling the planet, who was also God at the same time? Wouldn't that be cool if that could happen? Boy, to me, that sounds like it'd be the solution, right? Because a, a man that was also God couldn't screw up. He wouldn't be able to mess it up. But he, he could rule as a man on behalf of God. Now, I'm just dreaming here. I don't know if that could ever happen. Is that even possible? Oh, yeah, it's possible, isn't it? In fact, it's not just possible. It is what's going to happen. And so suddenly, the planet's restored to its original design. A mediatorial rulership of this planet through a man who's ruling on behalf of God. But when it happens again, it happens to be the God-man, who's also called what? The second Adam. Adam failed it, and Jesus picks that mantle up and does what Adam couldn't do. And suddenly, what do you see for that thousand-year reign on the planet? Everything's right. I mean, not just in terms of justice and those types of things, but, but the planet itself is set right. Things produce, food produces better. Everything works better when it's under the right administration. So that's where I see, that's how I see history playing out. Everything that God has done throughout history is with the purpose of bringing that guy about bringing him to be the ruler of this planet. So numbers of things have to happen for, that, for him to get there. If he's a ruler of this planet, that means he has to, has a, he have to, he has to have a throne. A, a ruler has to have a throne. A ruler has to have a land or a realm. A ruler has to have a people over which he is a king. So how did God make all that happen? I'll talk about that more in a little while. That, that's fascinating stuff. Questions? Again, this was a game changer in my mind. When I, when I saw that, 
like, oh my word, that's, that's what's happening. That's what God's trying to do in this book, point A to point B. That point A to point B makes me see the Bible a lot differently. Uh, the goal of eternity. So I believe that Jesus continues to rule this planet because eternity is earth. So all of the old songs that talked about heaven and the clouds and all that kind of stuff, that's all a bunch of, as they say in England, poppycock. All right? And take those, take those hymns out of your hymnal. Uh, heaven is earth. That's the one thing that Je the Jehovah's Witness have right. <laughs> You see their material, it shows pictures of heaven and they're, lot, they're, on a, they're on a planet. I remember seeing that for the first time. I'm like, that's not right. We're supposed to be in clouds. No, it's actually right. Uh, it's a renewed earth. So it's a planet. Uh, so in the movie Field of Dreams, is this heaven? Yeah, it actually is. Someday this is going to be heaven. I hope the cold weather goes away, right? Someday it will. Uh, so you do have Jesus continuing to rule and reign. Uh, but that, that purpose of that thousand years is for him to, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to rule until all the enemies have been put underneath his feet. For him to get final conquering over all of his enemies and to deliver that kingdom to God the Father. So that thousand year has a specific purpose and then the rest of eternity just continues the vision of the garden of eden in genesis of a man ruling the planet on behalf of god it's going to be like that for all eternity and we actually see trace some scriptural proof that nations continue even into eternity it, it still talks about nations it specifies e egypt coming every year to worship in jerusalem all through eternity. Which means that whatever color you are now is the color you're going to be in eternity as well. We, we actually keep national distinctions potentially. That's strange to think about. And I'm talking about your natural color, not, not from being in a tanning booth. <laughs> so Mike, this, Pastor Pat. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good text. You see that? I mean, there's so many verses that indicate that. But this would also, would you say that this would also, of course, uh, 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 impact our understanding of, uh, of the battle of the Christian, you know, the, the Christian warfare battle of, uh, of Ephesians 6? And you have terminology that's sort of kingdom-like. Yeah. Principalities yep. and powers, rulers. So you've got a got a construct underneath that whole thing yeah. over different areas and you got the Daniel 10 thing yeah. Yeah, he's got rulership with an organized rulership here. You know, and God battle God sends angels to battle and they they battle sometimes in Daniel it talks about 
the this demon held me off for this long? You know, why does God allow that to happen? It's just crazy. Um, and someday that the the satanic kingdom is going to be replaced by the messianic kingdom. And I personally, I don't believe that happens in a gradual sense. God's not, he's not gradually trying to slip this kingdom in, you know, behind Satan's back. Ooh, we got an outpost here. That's not going to happen. It's going to be, boom! I mean, just like, replace it. There goes my microphone. Is it? Here we go. Sorry. The recording's going to sound awful. It'll be like, <laughs> I just made it worse right there. So. Uh, you know, Jesus is going to read Revelation chapter 19, you know, and it's just all at once. You know, he doesn't need to gradually get this kingdom put in place. It's ridiculous. He's just going to establish it. Yeah. Think that's a great question. So, next bullet point down. <laughs> no, that's a great question. I love it when questions like that come because it means you're actually tracking with what I'm saying and you're anticipating the next point. So, that's, that's awesome. For covenant theologians, what's the purpose and goal of history? It's just eternity. So, the covenant view sees the course of history continuing the present struggle between good and evil until terminated by the beginning of eternity. So, everything just moves to just one colossal judgment and then we're in eternity. Uh, and as part of that, so there's no like goal in, in temporal history. We're not like moving it with different uh, administrations or anything. As part of that in the covenant theology, they see the goal of history as God saving the elect. That's what, that's what history is all about, is God establishing this people called the elect and God saves the elect, and that's what history is all about. But one of the things covenant theologian always claims to be more, more centered on, on the glory of God than dispensationalism, I don't see it like that at all. Because covenant theology literally sees God's entire point of history as saving the elect, which to me sounds more man-centered than my system. <laughs> because in my system, it's all about God glorifying himself by establishing the, the rule on this planet. And in the process, he does save people, but that's not his ultimate goal. We are not his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is glorifying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler of this planet. So to me, that's, that's more, I'm just using a theological term, that's more doxological than to say God's whole purpose of doing all this is just to save people. Yep. That's just kind of the starting point, but it goes moves into eternity. So, what's the big difference if one person's just looking toward the eternal state and one's looking toward the millennial kingdom? Because of all the things that have to happen to establish the millennial kingdom, puts a frame of reference for for what's happening here in the Bible. Is God setting the stage to bring that particular kingdom about? There's certain things that have to happen for that kingdom to come about. So again, Jesus has to have a, he has to have a crown, he has to have a throne, a dynasty by which he's a ruler. He has to have a people, a land, you know, things like that that make him a legitimate ruler. 
So it's just a different lens of seeing how God's bringing this about versus history is just kind of going on. There's good and evil. They're fighting each other. And then he just comes and judges everybody and we go into the eternity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in, in a lot of times in some of those theologies you hear <clears throat> the, the ruin, restoration. Is that, is that the right term, Brad? Do you remember if that's the right term? Uh, I, I, they, they talk about that, that little meta-narrative being throughout the Bible. I, I, I can't remember if it's ruin, restoration. Anyway, they limit it more, though, to people, to God saving the elect. So that's, that for them becomes the ultimate thing that God is doing always is is restoring people and and we would say more God's actually not just saving people he's restoring this planet to its original design through the rulership of Jesus eventually all right let's get down to where this starts to affect stuff so having this lens for seeing the Bible and I got it all listed out for you. I don't, I don't have the, the answers. I'll give you the answers later. But it affects how we view doing communion and baptism. It affects uh, our view of eschatology. It affects our view of Israel. It affects our view of the law. It affects doing church government. How you do church government changes in a premillennial versus a covenant viewpoint. It affects how you think of Sunday as Sabbath and how if you're a Sabbatarian. It affects giving, missions, your view of the kingdom, your view of interpretation of the Bible. It impacts how you see the resurrection playing out. It impacts biblical revelation. So the, the scriptures, how, how God intended the scriptures to roll out. I called it progressive revelation earlier. Um, it also impacts salvation how you view personal salvation in the way that you preach that so evangelism affects evangelism so does does this impact anything practical well you can see the list <clears throat> yeah it it uh, touches almost everything that we do as churches so your church here sailorville church uh plays out its premillennial theology whether you know it or not it's being played out all the time all right, turn the page. Let's go to explaining covenant theology. So I'll help you understand this a little bit. When we talk about covenant theology, it's important to distinguish that from the covenants in the Bible. Covenant theology is not talking about the covenants of the Bible. Okay, so name, name some of the covenants of the Bible. Abrahamic covenant. What else? Mosaic. Davidic. Noahic. Other ones. The new covenant. Okay? Covenant theology is not talking about those at all. Covenant theology is talking about, it's basically their dispensations. So if you, if you study dispensationalism at some point in your life, uh, I, I should put Abe Miller on, on the spot because we had the same intro to Bible study class in, in college. 
Abe, can you remember the names of some of the dispensations? No. All right. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. Well, don't you remember the big sheet that Dr. Kober would pull across the front of the, with all those laid out there? Uh, anybody take a stab, just name some of the dispensations? Government. Good. Government, what else? Innocence. Innocence. Law. Conscience. Conscience. Good. So, non-dispensationalists say, you guys are crazy, you're just making up stuff. Those aren't in the Bible. Like, I don't see, it doesn't talk about the dispensation of conscience in the Bible. Like, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, but y- you kind of do the same thing. So the covenant and covenant theology, the covenants are, are made up as well. So when it comes down to it, we're all playing the same game. We're, we're creating titles for different divisions of history. That, and they're, they're not in the Bible. They're not they're der- derived from the scriptures. So what is covenant theology? A system of theology which attempts to develop the Bible's philosophy of history on the basis of two and at most three covenants. So it takes all of history and breaks it into two or three major administrations. Breaks it into two or three dispensations. They wouldn't like us using that term. Okay, so what are these covenants? Well, the first one is called the covenant of redemption. And again, where'd they get that from? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's just, it's a term they use to describe something. Uh, the parties of that, the Father and the Son, the timing in eternity past. So you got one of these covenants that didn't even happen during human history. It happened before human history in eternity past. The details, the Father grants the Son to be the Redeemer of the elect. The Son voluntarily takes the place of the elect. The Son must keep the law Adam failed to keep. Son had to become a human to live under the Mosaic law, and the Son would get out of this resurrection, glory, and a people, a covenant people for himself. Okay? So that's the covenant of redemption. It's just God, the Father and the Son coming together and saying, hey, what are we going to do with history? And let's make a covenant together to do this. So then we have mankind created, the world's created, and we have what's called the covenant of works, which has always been interesting to me that they... They call it that, the covenant of works, that they, it, you know, have a, have a system that said it was based upon works, which is interesting to me because as a premillennialist and a dispensationalist, I, d- I don't think it was ever by works. You know, I don't see God ever working with mankind on the basis of works. Um, so what was the covenant of works? So the party, the God had an Adam, and it was at creation prior to the fall. The details, Adam had to obey God's rules completely. Adam was acting on behalf of all of his descendants. God promised Adam eternal life for obedience, and disobedience resulted in death. What happened with that? Genesis chapter 3, Adam, he sinned. He disobeyed. So then God made the covenant of grace. The party for covenant of grace, notice the next phrase. You can underline something that's very important. The Godhead and the elect plus their seed. That's, that's important. So if you're one of the elect, this covenant of grace extends to your kids to some degree. That starts to explain some things. So God promises salvation through faith in Christ and the sinner accepts this with belief promising a life of faith and obedience. That sounds pretty good. Here's what Burkhoff 
said, the covenant of grace is fully realized only in the elect, but the covenant as a historical phenomenon is perpetuated in successive generations and includes many in whom covenant life is never realized. What does that mean? That means that there can be always inside this covenant relationship people who are going to be saved and people who are not saved inside this covenant relationship. So that is how Israel worked. Inside of Israel you had, they were part of this covenant relationship through circumcision, but there were people, some didn't go to heaven and some did go to heaven, just to put it in the simplest terms. So there were some people that were truly saved and some that weren't, yet they were all still part of this covenant relationship. Okay, so you have elect and non-elect inside of this covenant relationship. And, and for use of a better term, I'm going to call it a pool. God makes this swimming pool, and you have all these people in this pool. It's called the covenant relationship. And so in covenant theology, God always has this covenant people that he's working with. And so in the Old Testament, it was Israel. Today, it's the church. And so they see the church as being this pool that's made up of some who are saved and some who are not saved. Okay, so keep that in your mind, that, that swimming pool idea. Everybody got that? Just imagine. <sighs> Feels good, right? Swimming pool. Okay. The timing of that is after the fall with Adam representing humanity. Uh, the details of the covenant, all covenants in the Bible are part of this one covenant. I like to keep putting the word dispensation in just to kind of poke at it a little bit. Each dispensation or covenant is simply another stage of the progressive revelation of the covenant of grace. So you've got one covenant that governs everything from the fall of man to revelation. But inside of that, they've got different divisions of it, which I would call dispensations. And then all God's people are part of the continuing covenant community. So that's Brad earlier said continuity so they see god has this group of people his covenant people and they they just continue this covenant people just continues in the old testament was called israel the new testament's now called the church it's the swimming pool all right so what does this mean for local churches well there's two aspects of the covenant then in a local church in covenant theology you've got communion life which is regenerate people. So inside this swimming pool of covenant relationship, there are people in that pool that are truly saved. They're regenerate people. They, they truly believe. But also inside the swimming pool, you have a legal relationship that people are part of the covenant, but they're not believers. So you have this mixed group. Some are saved, some are not saved. So how to how to regenerate or unregenerate people, people who are not saved, how do they participate in the covenant? Well, they have a responsibility to repent and believe. They are in a privileged position because when God elects, he chooses people who are already inside this covenant relationship. They are responsible to the church. The church must minister to them. They are due certain ministries of the Holy Spirit like conviction, enlightenment, blessings, and common grace. And they respond to the covenant at the appropriate age with a confession of faith. And this is called, anybody with Catholic Lutheran backgrounds? Confirmation. Okay. This is how their covenant theology plays out. So let me just try to explain this in practical terms. So covenant theology sees that God makes this covenant. He elects people, but the elect also have kids, and so kids are included into that, and so you've got this pool. 
this pool of covenant people. Inside this pool, some are regenerate, some aren't. If God's going to elect to save people, chances are he's going ch- to choose people that are inside this swimming pool. Okay? How do you get inside the swimming pool? What's that? One way is to be born into it. Okay, that doesn't immediately get you into that pool. What is it? Baptized. Baptized. That's how you get into the swimming pool. And ironically, you get into this, you get immersed in this swimming pool by sprinkling. (laughs) That was a bad joke. So how do you get into the covenant pool? In the Old Testament, you got into the covenant pool by... Boy, thank God we're, we do sprinkling now, right? And not circumcision. Yeah. So now as God's covenant people, you get into the swimming pool by baptism. Hence the reason why you baptize your babies. Because it actually is bringing them into this covenant relationship. It takes this child and puts them into the swimming pool. And in this swimming pool, this is where God chooses to save people. In this pool, this is if you're going to get chosen to be saved, it's going to happen inside this swimming pool. So why wouldn't you have your baby baptized? Right? It gets you in. It gets you into that pool. Sure. So chances are, if, if someone's going to get elect to salvation, it happens if, for the people inside this pool. But sometimes God will elect people that are not in the swimming pool. So I'm special. You're special, okay. yeah. <laughs> so you were not in the swimming pool, but is, if you do come to faith and you come and get baptized, and then it, that starts you into this covenant relationship. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got you got to got to you need to, you need to sprinkle. So our our friends, our neighbors who are having their baby baptized, a couple just interesting comments. They don't really go to church at all. It's always fascinating to me. Then they have kids, and there's this press to get them baptized. So Mike, is this would this also be a covenant uh, uh, theology's take for why there's no emphasis on evangelism? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Our our goal. All we need to do is get them in the pool. Let God do the rest. We just, we hope. It's not our job to, it's not our job to do anything with them once they're in the swimming pool. They're not denying <clears throat> those outside of the pool. God has to bring people from the pool into a relationship of salvation. That that does happen. Um, as a church, though, we do our best to try to make that happen by teaching and then confirmation is how you're trying to make that happen. But even after confirmation, it's not guaranteed that they're going to be regenerate. You're just, doing, you're just doing your best to get them as much exposure as possible so that God saves them. Mike, that's interesting because I was in a church I formerly pastored. We had a, we had a, a meal after a vacation Bible school. I was sitting with a, with a guy who was in a Reformed church just five miles up the road. And he, they always brought their kids to the church I pastored because they could hear the gospel. They, hmm. they just liked what we did. And he said, you know, I was in a Sunday school, and there were about 20 or 30 of us adults, and we were talking about why you guys focus on the need for the new birth. And he looked at me and goes, I don't think one of us have had that new birth. Hmm. Just spit it out. I appreciated his honesty, but it goes right along with what you're talking about. Yeah. It just, it's just foreign to their thinking. It is. It is because it's not the philosophy. You know, it's uh, you baptize the babies. And so my neighbors, both sides, 
this one had a baby, I heard some language like this. She said, we're so excited uh, to have our, our child begin his relationship with the Holy Spirit. So that's consistent language. That's what they believe. And they're taking that from an Old Testament covenant people viewpoint because that is how God worked with Israel. God worked with Israel like that. Circumcised, you're in the covenant. And then you do have to believe. And there, there was no moment of, you know, the need to come to faith in an evangelistic sense in the Old Testament. You know, they did just grow up in it as a covenant person. And at some point, their belief was real or it wasn't. And they ended in, in heaven or hell, okay? So that is true in an Old Testament sense. But what covenant theology does is it says God has this covenant pool. And in the Old Testament, it was Israel. And now that's just kind of transferred over here to the church, and that's why they call the church the New Israel. That's where that comes from. Hey, put it, put pause on that real quick. My other neighbor, I told you what the one neighbor, my other neighbor, we're so excited to get baby baptized, um, and we're just we're we're so glad that he's now going to be part of God's family. That's what she said. Uh, so that, that's what they're thinking. They don't even go to church except for the baptism of their babies. But in her mind, baptize the baby in God's family. You know what? I don't fault her for that because that's what she's been taught. Covenant theology, that is what they're teaching. You baptize the baby. We're in the, we're in the family pool now. So is this why non-practicing Jews send their kids to Hebrew school? Uh, you have to continue to maintain the covenant relationship. Uh, Non-practicing Jewish people still send their kids to Hebrew school. Mm-hmm. Uh, which specific denominations would hold this, this type of theology? That's a good question. So, Catholicism, Lutheranism, uh, Methodism, the Methodists to some degree as well, Presbyterians, the Reformed Church, <coughs> I, I mean the denomination, the Reformed Church. Anybody that practices infant baptism. Episcopalians. So it's really easy to spot it over there. How does it, how does it bleed over and how does it apply? How does it become practical? Uh, when I met with the lead pastor from Hope Lutheran, we were talking about church membership. And he was telling me that in church for them so they they are governed congregationally kind of so big decisions that are made in that church the the congregation has to vote so vote to buy land vote on budgets so you have members of the church voting i asked him is it a requirement for somebody to actually be regenerate to be a member answer no don't have to be regenerate to be a member now, again, we look at him and we say, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it is, but he's being consistent with his theology. Honestly, if you see a lot of continuity between Israel and the church, that's where you should land. Because that was how Israel functioned. You had all of Israel, they were members of the church. Some were, some were regenerate, some weren't. That is how Israel functioned. So if you're seeing large amounts of continuity between the Testaments, you should do that. If you see God playing out his, 
the way he operates through a covenant people, then you should do that. So I pressed it a little bit further. What about people that are actively living lifestyles that you wouldn't agree with? What about people who are actually atheists? He says they're all welcome to be members of the church. In fact, they're all, they, can be, they can be on staff at any level except for pastor. Interesting, huh? Baptism. Yeah, they were baptized. So they're part of the covenant people then, part of the covenant relationship. I said, we couldn't do that. You know, for us, church membership is a, is a stamp, it's a validation of somebody's testimony of salvation. And the purpose of membership is to hold them to that. And if they show signs that they're not regenerate, then they get, you know, kicked out of membership with the, with the hope of restoring them to a point of uh, coming to believe the gospel for real. He says, oh, that doesn't, that totally is, is different than what we believe. So we're on completely different pages Kind of. Again, it gets you into the right pool. But I heard, I heard a, a Lutheran preacher one time say it, he was asking for people to come and be baptized, and he said he quoted Romans chapter six and said the Bible says that if you are baptized, then you will be with him in the resurrection. So he made under no uncertain terms, I think anybody coming to be baptized that day was thinking, if I do this, I'm going to heaven. But in a technical sense, they would say it brings them into the right swimming pool. And then in this pool, this is where God chooses to save people. And we just keep giving them as much information as we can, and hopefully eventually they come to believe. So that would be Roman Catholicism where, yeah, they would see different levels of where you're at in your, in your salvation. So I like, I like to say Roman Catholics, what we believe is there's, there's two sides, two halves of the gospel. There's the half of the gospel that says you have to have your sin debt forgiven, and the other half of the gospel is you have to be perfectly righteous before God. Only people that are as, as righteous as God is will get to heaven. That's, there's two halves. Roman Catholics have the first half right. They, they believe Jesus did die for your sins, but they don't have the second half of it. So they say, yep, Jesus died for our sins, but it's our job to get the rest of the way with righteousness. So they, they see Jesus bringing us to zero, and then we have to do the rest of the work. And if you don't quite do enough, then you do the rest in purgatory. Mm-hmm. So in that theology, it's what washes away your sins, and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit when they anoint you with, with oil. Yes. Yes, it, it does. It starts a relationship with the Holy Spirit, takes away especially original sin, and then there's still a responsibility to believe after that. In that. Yeah, I think there's, you're right. There's a huge pool here of people that would hold to it, but there are outliers like you know Tim Keller and the Pres conservative Presbyterian okay. that would hold to covenant theology but certainly would be having heavy emphasis on evangelism and non-baptism so 
That's a, that's, a, that's a good question or comment and actually brings me to the next idea. So it's easy to see this with Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians and stuff. So how does it bleed into broader evangelicalism? Well, I think it bleeds into broader evangelicalism in the sense that it, it lays the groundwork for what we'd call the seeker-sensitive or attractional model of doing ministry. Because really, some of these churches, if, if you take like a Lutheran Church of Hope, which again, I, I'm, not, I'm not throwing mud there. I'm just saying they, they play out their theology in a consistent way. If you see this idea of the covenant pool, then your goal your main goal is to get as many people into that, into that pool as possible. <clears throat> you're not trying to save them. You're not trying to push them for personal salvation. You're just trying to get them into the pool. That is what a seeker-sensitive or attractional model is. Let's just get as many people as possible to show up, and we'll do it in any way possible. We're going to water down the message. We're going to make it palatable to believers. We're going to you know, enhance the... the uh, performance level of everything, et cetera, et cetera, to try to get as many people in the seats as possible so they can hear the gospel and eventually come to faith in Christ. So people that operate by the seeker model really are operating by a covenant theology model without even knowing it that says we're just trying to get people in this pool and then hopefully if we can get them here, then God will save them. Whereas... I would say, consistent theology would say, no, the church, the church is for believers. Membership is for believers. And our job as a church, as an organized church, is to teach believers. And in the process, we also see people saved. But the goal of the organized church is not simply to bring the unbeliever to a place so that they get into the right pool for God to save them. Does that make sense to everybody? That's where it kind of gets practical on how you do church and how that kind of rolls out like that. That would explain why some of my friends that are from like the Lutheran or, or Catholic perspective try to get people to come to church as opposed to teaching the gospel. Trying to evangelize them. Yeah. The greatest seeker-sensitive churches that are out there are Catholic churches because it's literally just come to church. Just come to church. We just want to get you into this pool that, you know, this covenant relationship that hopefully God will save you out of that. Yes, right. That's that's it.
it puts you in the pool, and hence the influence is all there. You know, there's no need for a huge focus. There's no need, as Mike was saying, when Jesus comes to take over, it's not going to be a gradual taking over, as, as that theology would say. He's going to he's going to come and take it over. That's what we believe about salvation. Yeah. You got to hear the gospel. Yes, people are they're drawn to it. You see those signs and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's when the person believes they're a new creation. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, that's good. She just got saved the other day. Oh, that's awesome. That's good. Yeah. So, so we, we, see, we see baptism different, and we call it believer's baptism, which means it needs to happen after you truly become a believer. So, yeah, as a testimony of what happened to you. Yeah, so if it happened before belief, then you're, you're on a road to experience your third baptism, which is a lot of fun, right? Yeah, yeah, first... Uh, First legitimate one, as we would say. Yeah. I mean, it was a children's I didn't choose it. It was yep. Yeah. Great so question. You are on the subject that's the most, that's the foggiest of all in a lot of months. You know, when you're dealing with the, our friends, bar, you listed as interesting Lutherans, uh, Episcopalians, Roman Catholics even. But we mostly think of Presbyterians and Reformed individuals. Yes. Yeah. So Brad brought up Tim Keller. Yeah, he still he still does have a, a bit of a an attractional model, and I don't know how they do church membership and stuff. I'm not sure if they really play that out much, um, but it is more of a get get people in to to sit. The, the, how he does church is different, and it is based upon a covenant covenantal view. Not he preach he definitely preaches the gospel. So you see this; it's on a spectrum. You see people kind of moving across that spectrum in different applications of it it's not i i try to tell you the most cut and dry explanation so that you understand the theology but then there's a spectrum of how it rolls forward um, look at your notes down at the bottom when was covenant theology developed uh in the early church i would pejoratively say there is no covenant theology that's just my view I, i've read some books there's evidence of a pre-millennial viewpoint of, of viewing the scriptures all the way back to the earliest apostles. So the succession, the earliest church fathers believed in a premillennial viewpoint of the church. Uh, Burkhoff, who's a writer, uh, theologian, covenant theologian, in the early church fathers, the covenant idea is not found at all. So they would admit the earliest, the earliest people had a premillennial view. So we see some seeds of, of uh, covenant theology in Augustine, in the 400s, and he was highly anti-Semitic, and unfortunately, covenant theology did develop out of anti-Semitism to say God is done with the Jewish people. 
Uh, that means that every promise in the book is ours. So we're just going to take all the promises because it's obvious God's done with them. They're, they're, they're Jesus killers. They're on the shelf. It's all, it's all us now. So we assume all the promises. During the, rest, the Reformation, there was uh, a guy there uh, in the 1500s that began to, to make the system actually on paper. So sometimes covenant theologians will say, oh, you dispensationalists, you know, you just developed your system recently. Eh, not really. Both of us, both of our systems were actually developed on paper during the Reformation. So you cannot say that one predates the other, except for you can say premillennialism, I think, predates everything. Uh, the 1650s, 1700s, kind of the synthesizing of the system where it became more congealed, and then in America, the Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, <coughs> began to make it a little bit more uh, systematized. So foundational beliefs that contrast it from premillennial or dispensational theology is the continuity of God's plan for all God's people of all ages. So they would say God's always just run on this swimming pool concept. That's how God works, and he's still working that way. So you need to get your, get your babies into the covenant pool as soon as possible, then God saves out of that covenant pool. Uh, Old Testament Israel is the church in the Old Testament. The New Testament church is the Israel of the New Testament. So there's this continuity between Israel and the church. The church is now the spiritual Israel. So you can see why does it matter? <coughs> the reason it matters is because then all promises of Israel must be fulfilled in the church. If, if you're seeing that continuity, that bleed over, everything that was promised to Israel somehow has to find its fulfillment now. All the unfulfilled promises have to find their fulfillment now, somehow, in the church. Um, the millennial kingdom promises are fulfilled in the church. And so there is no actual kingdom because they would read the Old Testament and say there is a kingdom promised to the people of Israel on the land of Israel with Jerusalem as the capital, but they forfeited that. But all those promises stand, so somehow that's fulfilled in the church. And so we now are the kingdom. This is the fulfillment of the kingdom. Now I gotta say, if you believe that, I'm royally disappointed in this kingdom. I mean, God has completely shortchanged us if this is the kingdom because it doesn't look anything like what the Old Testament said the kingdom is going to look like. Uh, then all the practices of Israel must be accepted or modified for the church. If, the, if Israel becomes the church, then what Israel did and what was prescribed to them somehow is to find its fulfillment in the church. And then my statement here, I love the statement, Roman Catholics are the most consistent covenant theologians on the planet. Why, why do Catholic priests dress in those robes and the hats and everything? Why? Have you read the Old Testament? What does it prescribe for the priests? Robes, hats. Why do they wave incense? Have you read the Old Testament? The altar of incense and the smokes and the fires and the candles. and Why do they have altars? Again, same thing. Why, why do they do mass where you're sacrificing Jesus Christ every week again. Why? Because the Old Testament prescribes constant sacrifices for sins. That's just updated for today. You keep sacrificing. Keep sacrificing Jesus over and over again because that's what it says to do in the Old Testament. They literally are the most consistent covenant theologians because they see that continuity. They see the promises to Israel fulfilled in the church and therefore we have to read what it says to Israel and do it somehow in the church today. They see the church as the kingdom on the planet, and they see it more physical than any other denomination because they literally see there is a kingdom on this planet, and it's called 
Vatican. Like they actually see holding property. That's what the Crusades were all about. Let's reclaim all of this land for the kingdom of God. So very, very consistent. If you're going to be a covenant theologian, you ought to be Roman Catholic. Well, then there's just kind of a spectrum then of moving. So if you don't buy into all of that, then you kind of move into Lutheranism, and then you move to the Reformed Church, and then Presbyterian Church. Then you keep moving over a little bit. You know, Methodist gets a little bit closer to what we believe, and then you kind of broadly evangelical, then all the way over to Baptistic theology, which is probably the furthest away because it sees those distinctions most clearly. All right, questions on that real quick? So, <clears throat> Roman Catholicism to Lutheranism to Reformed churches to Presbyterian to Methodist and then, I, I'm, I don't know specific names, but then it kind of moves into broadly evangelical and then over to Baptistic theology. The more you move this way, the more Baptistic you become because that was the, how the, the progress of the Reformation worked. Hey, the Bible doesn't actually say we're supposed to do this, so let's, let, let's start abiding by the Bible. That's what Luther, Luther said. But let's keep a bunch of this other stuff. Well, then the reformers, as they continue to move, it's like, well, we don't like all the stuff that the Lutherans are keeping because that's not in the Bible, so let's move, take a step this direction, but we're going to still keep some of this stuff that tradition said. Well, then the, the Baptistic theologians came along and said, why are you doing all this stuff? That's not in the Bible either, so let's take another step towards biblical authority. And eventually we have Baptistic theology. I'm not saying Baptists, I'm saying Baptistic theology. Every non-denominational church out there, E-free churches, all the, they, their roots are Baptist. It's the Baptists that, that invented all that stuff. Separates the church of state, all that. It's, it's Baptistic. Any other questions? They're right. Not Old Testament. In the New Testament, yes. it was the Catholic Church for the first few hundred years. So I would just point. I would just point to time early on in the history. They began to uh, see baptism as having saving quality, and so I would just say. Early on, there were seeds of false doctrine being planted. And so it, it's the story of a church that was completely orthodox at the beginning, slowly moving away from that. But at the same time, there is a, another trail of history of people that, that stayed true to biblical Christianity. And you can't trace that. And it really kind of came to a head in the 1500s with the Reformation. So a totally consistent covenant theologian should be amillennial. But there are premillennialists that lean more on the covenant side of things. So a premillennialist that leans on the covenant side of things 
sees more blending between Israel and the church. So they see less of a role of Israel moving forward and see more of the promises of, of Israel being fulfilled in the church, yet they still maintain a little more of a distinction. So that, that kind of becomes a little fuzzier as you go across the, the spectrum on it. So covenant-leaning premillennialists. There are some of those out there. Just through the teaching of the church, they learn it, they hear it, and the hope is at some point they, they truly do believe it. So they do, yep, they do, that's the reason why they do alpha class, I think, yeah. And again, I, I had a really good chat with the pastor there, um, and I see where he's coming from. He's just being consistent with his theology, like very consistent. I think as a Lutheran, He's actually playing it out the way it ought to be played out. Let's, let's be as seeker-driven as possible. That's what we're here to do, to get as many people in that pool as we can. I'm honestly concerned for them as a church because they've got massive numbers of unbelievers who are members and staff members that have voting power to determine the direction of the church. You know, that's that's going to go sideways at some point. Um, what's that? Oh, yeah, teaching classes on staff, leading worship. Uh, Jonathan Edwards came to to kind of renounce some of his covenant theology. Uh, he began to believe that you should be a a believer in order to be a member of the church. And they kicked him out for that. The church members voted him out. Like, we don't want that kind of a church. So his theology was beginning to change. And we we think that sounds crazy, but it, it's they were just being consistent with their theology, and Jonathan Edwards was beginning to evolve on that. The goal is to fill as many seats as possible any way possible. Yeah. And God 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 uses it. God uses anything. I'm glad that God doesn't use just what's perfect in his plan because none of us would be used. You know, I like, I like to say, it, what gives me hope is to know that God uh, spoke through the mouth of a donkey in the Old Testament. And if he did that, he can use me. Amen? Let's break, come back in 15 minutes, and then we'll round it out. All right, let's wrap this up. Some uh, final teaching, and then uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a little time for some questions. Although, you guys have done a phenomenal job asking questions along the way, and I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I take uh, questions as being proof that people are listening and tracking. So if there's no questions, that means I'm failing uh, at, at what we're talking about here. So let's go on to understanding uh, premillennialism, or what I'd call dispensationalism. I want to kind of breeze through a little bit of the early church and the history of that. Starts 
Uh, you see it in the New Testament writers. The Gospels present uh, two ages, the present age and the age to come is what it says in the New Testament. And the, the age idea was always synonymous with the present age that we're living in and the age to come always meant the messianic kingdom. The messianic kingdom being the Old Testament vision of the messianic kingdom. If you read the Old Testament, all those passages, it predicts a time where on the land of Israel, there will be a king, a Davidic king ruling and that Jerusalem will be the capital of the world and all spiritual blessings will flow from Israel to the rest of the world. That's Isaiah chapter 60. It's a great uh, Advent text actually. So that was the vision of the Old Testament kingdom. And in the New Testament, the writers talk about this present age and the age to come. In Jewish thinking, that always meant the Messianic kingdom. Uh, Paul wrote, writes Romans 9 through 11 and sees a future for Israel. John, Revelation 19 and 20, the millennium sequence. It's a very hard passage to get around. Uh, it's stated so clearly in Revelation chapter 20. I, I just have a hard time thinking you can be honest with yourself and read Revelation 20 and say, yeah, it's all figurative. Because it says, the thousand years. Like eight times or something in those verses. It just repeats it over and over again. Uh, it's just fascinating how you can just kind of wipe that off. We'll talk about hermeneutics here in a second. In the early church, they called it chiliasm. Uh, this, this was not any kind of a chili cook-off. That sounds good about now, doesn't it? It was the belief in a thousand-year reign of Christ. It was the accepted position of the early church. Uh, Adolf Harnack, who is a covenant amillennialist, says, faith in the nearness of Christ's second advent and the establishing of his reign of glory in the, on the earth was undoubtedly a strong point of the primitive Christian church. That's an amillennialist saying that the primitive early church were premillennialists. You notice the language he says that in though. He says, the primitive. You know what he's trying to do there? He's saying, yeah, premillennialism was the position of the early church, but this was primitive Christianity. They were a bunch of cavemen. They didn't really understand the Bible yet. Um, Justin Martyr, he believed in a premillennial return of Christ. Uh, then Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyons. He died in 200. He was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, like the guy that wrote Revelation. Polycarp was a premillennialist. Arrhenius was a premillennialist. All of the major churches in Asia were, were discipled. The pastors of the major churches of Asia were discipled by John the Apostle before he was exiled to Patmos. He writes the book of Revelation to those churches, those pastors that he discipled. Premillennialism was so strong among those churches, they actually called it Asiatic premillennialism. It was the accepted position of all those pastors and churches, and John was the one who discipled them. We have very strong uh, line of premillennialism right to John. So when you say, what did John mean when he wrote all this stuff? Well, he was speaking in terms that the people understood, the, the people he had discipled, and they were all premillennial. So that, that really uh, leans a lot of weight on our side of the uh, the the argument. <clears throat> Let's go down to uh, Hippolytus. He was a bishop of Rome. He died in 
2.35, he taught a chronology of Daniel 9.24-27 and actually believed in a literal seven-year tribulation. You see hints of people believing in a seven-year tribulation and even a rapture of the church all the way back to the 200s. So don't let anybody tell you that we don't have history on our side. It's just that once Augustine came, it, beca- it really got overwhelmed and overshadowed because everything from Augustine forward was all covenant theology, Israel's done, it's all the church now. I mean, it's just overwhelming uh, material from Augustine forward. Okay? Middle Ages, uh, Constantine, Constantine was really the guy that fused the church and state. The kingdom had come to earth. Augustine, he was a premillennialist and he switched. And the reason why he switched is he began to read the Bible, not in a literal sense, but in an allegorical sense. That's why he switched. So to be a non-premillennialist means that you're reading the Bible as non-literal. I like to say this. There's never been a liberal theologian. You know what I mean by liberal theologian? Like someone who doesn't believe in the Bible. Uh, a liberal theologian is someone who doesn't take the authority of Scripture, takes it figuratively or allegorically, etc., etc. There's never been a liberal theologian who's a premillennialist. I can't think of any. All liberal theologians are amillennialists. They're all on the covenant theology side of things. Because premillennialism, premillennialism guards you in your interpretation of Scripture it, because it takes the Scripture at face value. I just think that's kind of a, a neat point. Uh, Reformation period, Martin Luther comes out with sola scriptura, the Bible's our authority for everything. He didn't know what he was doing because his disciples, you can, you can draw a direct line from Luther to the development of dispensationalism. It was his disciples that discipled somebody else that kept preaching sola scriptura, sola scriptura. At some point, someone's like, well, why don't we actually believe it and take it literally? And you can draw a line from Martin Luther to the development of strong premillennial theology. And then I've got some other people there. Uh, John Edwards is not Jonathan Edwards. It just happened to be a popular name <clears throat> on the other side. And then Isaac Watts in the 1600s actually presented a six-dispensational viewpoint. So it was in the works a long time ago. Uh, what covenant theologians will say is, oh, you guys, you, your system was developed in the 1900s. And I said, no, no, they'll, they'll point back here to this guy, Darby. I have written on the page there, but it was long before him. He's the one that really started to just pull things together in a more systematic way. C.I. Schofield, how many of you have ever heard of a Schofield reference Bible? Anybody? Uh, that reference Bible popularized it and made it kind of the standard viewpoint for evangelical churches. And then Lewis Sperry Schaefer from Dallas Theological Seminary is the one also that helped to pull it all together. Questions on the history of that? That was fast because I want to get to this next part. You have a question over here. Yep. No, no, that, that came later. So the, the ones that believed in premillennialism were not doing infant baptism in the early church. So it really, you know, once Constantine made the church and the state, blended the two together, and then he began to do bapt, like mass baptisms, 
like a cart would go through a crowd of people and they would just like spray water on people. Like you've thusly been baptized and Christianized. You know, that's, that's what Constantine ushered in. Uh, to me, I see satanic influence there, just trying to deceive people. You know, making an entire crowd of people feel like they're saved because they were, uh, they were hit by somebody spraying water from a scepter. You know, I, I can run through a sprinkler if I want to get that. It doesn't make me saved. So, yeah, the genre would determine that. So you have, in poetry, you've got obvious illustrations being used. Uh, Jesus, Jesus in the New Testament says, I am the door. I don't look at that and say, he's saying he's made out of wood. I wonder if it's golden oak. Probably not. So they get way hung up on that, especially with Revelation. Read Revelation, it's clear when it's speaking figuratively. John uses the word like. He says, it was like this. What I saw was something like that. He uses the word like to tell you he's going to break into some kind of a metaphor, or in my estimation, John's just sitting there, like he has no idea what he's looking at. It's like, he has no frame of reference whatsoever. And he's just trying to describe it the best he can. But he'll say a sign appeared or it was like or as those types of words indicate. I'm going to talk figuratively. Uh, but then there's other times when he doesn't say that. And he, just, he just says, and he, like, there was an earthquake like none that, that's ever been seen in the history of the world. And mountains were leveled and everything was broken apart. You know, when he says that, he didn't preface that by saying like. He says, I saw an earthquake. Other times he'll say, I saw this, this beast appear in the sky and it, looked, and it was like this or that. You know, suddenly, okay, we're, we're speaking figuratively. It had, you know, this many horns and heads and crowns and talks about a woman. But then sometimes in biblical prophecy, it actually explains itself. Well, now the woman gave birth to a child who will rule the nation someday. Ah, I think I know who this woman is. It's, it's Israel because it's talking about giving birth to a child. You know, it's really not as hard as it seems on the surface when you just read through it. But some of that allegorical interpretation started because, again, the anti-Semitism back in the three and four hundreds, uh, my, my last trip to Israel was in 2016. We stood on the Temple Mount. You could see the you can see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the distance, which is where they say Jesus was crucified and buried. And that area is higher topographically than the Temple Mountain. And the people in the early church in those days, they felt like Judaism was conquered. They felt like putting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre higher than the Temple Mount was a way to show that we had conquered Judaism. It was kind of an in-your-face type of thing. And the Muslims came, and they asked to have the Temple Mount, and the early church said, go for it. We don't want that place. We've conquered Judaism, and they let them have it in the early church, which is why now there's the Dome of the Rock and all that stuff there. Which is funny how God works, because that 
building the Dome of the Rock is the only reason why there's peace in Jerusalem right now. There's no way there'll ever be a nuclear attack on Jerusalem because that's a holy spot for Muslims as well. So it's just interesting the mindset early on that, that Jewish people were completely dis, disregarded by God. Right. There's no doubt that baptism for salvation early on became the standard practice of the church. So it, it is true. It goes back a long ways. Uh, but some of the roots of that theology were starting to grow as well, where they were disregarding Judaism and thinking that we had to assume all the promises to Israel and function in, in, a, in a covenant pool sort of way. Yeah. And you, you saw that on the internet? What? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's their catechism. Yeah, right. But a lot of it is just from a biblical perspective. So everybody knows from a, when you're trying to reach these individuals, particularly Lutherans, because they love, and Presbyterians, I mean, covenant individuals, they love to point to the household baptisms in uh, Acts 16, Acts 18. If you go to Acts 16, that's the classic one that the, uh, the Philippian jailer, you just just read the text. It says they all, all in that house heard the word. They mm -hmm. all responded. Yep. The assumption is that there's a baby in that house, which is the weirdest assumption to think about. Oh, there must have been a baby there. Does everybody here have a baby in their house? There's probably a few of you do, but the assumption of that is unbelievable. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's, it's a logical conclusion. And it does make sense if you take that viewpoint that God operates on the basis of a covenant pool, a covenant people, like he did in Israel. And so they brought people into that covenant through circumcision. Therefore, if God's still operating in terms of a covenant people, then we need to have a way of bringing our babies into that covenant people as well. So it does make sense. It's not completely ridiculous, except that it's not actually stated in the Bible explicitly. All right, let's go on to the next section here. I use the word synquanon. How many people know any Latin? Synquanon. What, what does synquanon mean? Synquanon, that simply means the absolute basics. What, what are the must-haves uh, of a system? The absolute basics. So what's the synquanon of dispensationalism. And I'm going to give you a phrase here. This, this is what for me has been 10 years in the making. And you're going to look at this statement. You're going to be like, that took you 10 years? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm not, as, I'm not as smart as Abe Miller. It's okay. <laughs> We've been going back and forth on that today, Abe. 10 years in the making. So my, as I say, my purpose of history is this. God glorifying himself by reestablishing the mediatorial kingdom on this planet 
Now, here's the important next phrase. By means of the nation of Israel. For the blessing and salvation of all nations. So the way that God is still working to establish that mediatorial kingdom is through the promises given to Israel. That's what took me 10 years to figure out. And why there's still promises that are good for Israel. Why, why does he even care? Why, he's not just fulfilling the promises just because he, for the fun of it. Like there's reasons why he still has to fulfill the promises and it's actually to get Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Like those promises have to be fulfilled to get him there. They make the cross the goal of, the goal of history. Okay. And whereas the cross is the climax of history, the goal of history is for Jesus then to go from the cross to the grave, to out of the grave, to a throne in Jerusalem to rule this planet. So we have, we have a different destination in mind. And I, I'm not minimizing the cross by saying that. That's, that makes it all happen. But the goal of history is, is to get Jesus sitting in that throne in Jerusalem. kingdom's already here. The kingdom's here. And now it's our job to help establish that kingdom. And that gets us into a whole other discussion of issues of, ready for this? Social justice. <laughs> Becoming woke Baptists. I'm listening to the, to the giggles just to know who's been reading things out there. <clears throat> um, if you are an amillennialist, then you ought, you ought to be changing the entire purpose of your church to be establishing the kingdom and to be establishing social justice on this planet. Because that is the vision of the kingdom in the Old Testament. And if we are to be establishing the kingdom, then those are the things that we should be doing. And that changes the mission of the church. Uh, that has massive implications for how you do church and, and what you do as a church. I believe Jesus said to the church, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all things I've commanded to you. Jesus did not tell us to establish this kingdom on this planet. He told us to make disciples. So get out there and lead people to Christ, amen? That's what he told us to do. Not to take back parts of the planet for the kingdom and to establish social justice. Jesus says to his disciples, you're always gonna have the poor with you. In other words, you're not gonna make a dent in that. Should we do kind actions? Absolutely, but it's not our job to try to establish social justice. Jesus will establish social justice. He will do it. And he'll do it better than we can ever do. I guarantee you that. My, my sentence right here hopefully would help you with that. So God glorifying himself by reestablishing the mediatorial kingdom to this planet. So this planet ruled by a human, ruling for God as a human, and he's doing it through the nation of Israel for the blessing and salvation of all nations. So that's, that's the storyline of what God's doing from Genesis to Revelation. Is versus God glorifying himself by saving the elect. So that's the purpose of history in a, in a covenant schema. God glorifying himself by 
saving the elect, which then that makes the cross the goal. And then everything after the cross is just waiting for that judgment to come. So that statement's become very helpful for me because I still then I see what God still has to do with the nation of Israel and why there's still a future for Israel. Uh, the reason Jesus is not ruling this planet yet is because those uh, stubborn people won't accept him as their king. Oh, I've, I'm, I'm using biblical language. I'm not being condescending or racist. Um, thought about quitting my job and going to Israel as a missionary to just say, accept him! <laughs> like, uh, if you want peace, there's one way to get it. But it's not going to happen that way. God's going to have to, like, smash them. He's going to have to crush them as a people. And I believe that happens in the seven-year tribulation where he backs them up against a wall and forces their hand to finally accept him as their king. And that's when it happens. So until then, their hearts are hardened, as, as Paul says in Romans 9 through 11. So anyway, that, I'm getting off. This, this stuff's really exciting to me. I like talking about it. All right, so the sin quinan, what are the basics of dispensationalism? So you could say premillennialism, but dispensational premillennialism. Uh, here's some myths first, myths of dispensationalism. Number one, it teaches multiple ways of salvation. That is not the case. It's always taught that salvation is by grace through faith. Always. It's never been by works. But th the object of your faith has changed in different administrations. So the object of the faith for the Old Testament saints was the system that God put in place of sacrifice and having faith in the system. Uh, another myth is that dispensationalism is Arminian and cannot be associated with Reformed theology. As Dwight Schrute would say, false. <laughs> dispensationalism is a product of the Reformation. It is a branch of Reformed theology. Myth. Dispensationalism is primarily about breaking the Bible into seven dispensations. That also is false. I don't care how many divisions you have. It's not about memorizing the different, the different divisions. Uh, fourth, dispensation forces a pre-trib position. That's also false. There is such thing as a post-tribulation. Someone who believes Jesus comes after the tribulation you can be a post-tribulation or a mid-trib person and still be a dispensationalist. That, that's not necessarily tied into that. So what is the truth about dispensationalism? The sin quinan. Here are the, the three basic things. These are mine. I, I developed this. You can, you can read. Uh, different people have developed different ones. Some people have a list of seven. To me, seven, that's not sin quinan. Sin quinan, like, give me the most basic points. Most basic points for me, number one, and you have to keep adding words to describe these things, a historical, grammatical, authorial, intent, hermeneutic for interpretation. Why are all of those words necessary? Well, because uh, there's a lot of people that believe and would say, oh, I believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture. Covenant theologians would say but they believe in a literal interpretation. Yeah, but do you believe in a literal interpretation in terms of authorial intent literal interpretation. So somebody somebody tell me what do I mean by that? What's authorial intent? What's that? To rule? Yes. Uh expand that a little bit more. What the author intended. 
What did the author intend? Right. Yeah, so in any given passage of Scripture, what was the author's intended meaning and how did the audience hear it? That ought to impact your interpretation. So Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, to me is a a great text of Scripture. If you want to just say, where's the world going? What's God's plan for history? Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10 lays it out. Uh, in, In this section... It says uh, to, to the people of Israel, this is right before they go into the land. He's saying, you need to obey. If you obey, you know, God's going to bless you. He's going to keep you on this land. And then he says, oh, by the way, we know you're not going to obey. Moses was being very unencouraging here. Um, and he says that he's going to scatter you. So verse 3, then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, gather again from all the peoples where he scattered you. He, Uh, Even if the exiles are in the farthest location, he's going to gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, and you will take possession of it. Original audience reading that. How did they hear that? What was Moses' intent? Do you think Moses was talking figuratively about the Vatican being established on the planet? Do you think he was talking figuratively about another group of people that's going to inherit these promises? When he says the land that your fathers inherited? What land is it that their fathers inherited? The land of Israel. Authorial intent. So dispensationalism views interpretation as historical, grammatical, authorial intent. What the author intended to mean and how did the audience hear it? That's how you interpret it. That doesn't change. You can't change that. Okay? Now, the last point on, or one of the last points, the authorial intended message should not be superseded. So in other words, as more scripture came, scripture that came later did not change the meaning of scripture that came before. Didn't completely change the meaning that the scripture that came before in the Old Testament stands as stated and you, and you interpret it as stated. Okay? That, that's an important one for us to understand. We don't allow the Old Testament to reinterpret the New Testament. We read the Old Testament and let the Old Testament speak for itself. Uh, I get a little uncomfortable with always trying to find Jesus in Old Testament passages because sometimes, quite honestly, Jesus actually isn't in there. Uh, I think you find gospel applications. I think you can bring salvation into it, but I get uncomfortable with things like saying uh, the story of Jonah is actually Jonah was Jesus getting thrown overboard by his friends. No, Jonah was not Jesus. In fact, Jonah was not doing a good thing by getting thrown overboard. He was trying to commit suicide. Jesus was not trying to commit suicide when he went to the cross. You know, so this whole thing of trying to force and find, you know, you can see gospel applications, but you shouldn't be trying to always reinterpret the Old Testament into something that it wasn't intended to be. How did the... He's like him. Yeah, there's a, always a pointing forward of things to come, but you don't reinterpret the story of Jonah. So th- this is a complex issue. <clears throat> what about in terms of various prophecies where it seems like there's maybe an Old Testament fulfillment of that, but then Jesus is sort of the greater confirmation of that? There's, there's always multiple fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies, it seems. So you have kind of the immediate and then the greater. 
but the greater isn't isn't so much that Jesus is the fulfillment of it as the greater prophecy shoots past the cross into the kingdom mostly that that goes into the kingdom period usually okay number two a sharp distinction between God's program for Israel and the church they are not to be conflated God worked with Israel uniquely in the Old Testament that does not carry over to the New Testament church so God gave very specific instructions for priests to wear robes and hats and all these chains and different things. So praise the Lord as pastors today. Amen, Pat. We don't have to wear all that stuff. Um, I would love to see the reaction of my congregation if I got up and wore a, a big old crucifix around my neck, right? Yeah. Wouldn't go over well. But we keep, we keep the two programs separate. Uh, the church began in Acts chapter 2, not with Abraham. And we do not believe that the church has inherited the promises given to Israel. Number three, a future fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies to the nation Israel. So number three means that we believe in a national Israel. We believe that there will be promises that will come true for actual Jewish people, by blood Jewish people. It's going to happen. It's very hard not to believe that when you read Romans 9 through 11. I don't know how you can believe anything different when you read Romans 9 through 11. Has God set aside his people? Absolutely not. He hasn't set aside his people. Like in the whole image of the vine and being grafted in and versus natural, you know, uh, branches of the vine and all those things. So there is a national Israel. God will fulfill his promises in national Israel. And again, it's national Israel that will trigger Jesus to come and, be, and become the, the king of this planet someday. So that, that's what we're waiting on. So for me, that's dispensationalism in, in, in a nutshell. You notice I didn't mention anything about innocence, conscience, human government, law. I didn't say anything about that. These three things, this is it in a nutshell. There's far more people that are dispensational than want to admit it. Uh, John Piper is a great thinker. John P I heard him say one time, dispensationalism is the furthest thing from me. That, that, that word does not describe me at all. Oh, really, Piper? I don't talk to him like this in person. <laughs> Well, he and I go out for coffee once in a while. No. Um, so John Piper believes in interpreting the Old Testament as is. He does not believe in reinterpreting the Old Testament. Check. Number two, he, believes, he does believe in a distinction between the pr programs for Israel and the church because John Piper does not believe that the, that the Ten Commandments apply to the Christian at all today. And that would be my position as well. There's no direct application of the Ten Commandments. That is for Israel. If you apply Ten Commandments to us today, then you better be ready to apply all the rest of the law as well. It's, it's all or nothing. You don't apply a little bit of the law to us today. It's all or nothing. And that's, that's Piper's position. So he does see this distinction. Check. Number three, future fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. I've heard him preach on Romans 9 through 11. I've heard him say, I can't take this any other way that there is a national Israel and there's a future for national Israel and God's going to save them someday. Check. Number three. Guess what, pipes? You're a dispensationalist whether you want to be or not. Right? Again, I'm not going to say this to him to his face, but he'd probably kill me. Because of 
the reputation that dispensationalism has, the whole set, the number of dispensations and the starts and stops and reading, reading Revelation through the newspaper and all that kind of stuff. People, ah, that's, that's, that's just garbage. You know, people just are fed up with that kind of thing. So that's why I'm trying to update the language and get it to real, let's just talk about the real basics of this. What does this mean to be a true premillennial theologian, dispensational theologian? In administration, God's setting the rules for a certain time period. So in this time period, sacrifice lambs. Our time period, don't do that anymore. Another time period, no bacon. Our time period, let's go to Jethro's, amen? <laughs> All right, <clears throat> here's some terms that confuse people. The term reformed. What's reformed? Well, Reformed, there is a church, a denomination. I have that on the list. I also use described denomination. But what is Reformed? A Reformed is a set of doctrines that came from the Reformation. The Reformation formed a viewpoint about certain doctrines. So there's a, a Reformed idea of soteriology. What does that word mean? Salvation. Salvation. There's a Reformed idea of what of how you do church, ecclesiology. There's a reformed idea of doctrine of last things, eschatology. So reformed is just an adjective to describe a certain viewpoint on certain doctrines. What is covenant? Well, there's, there's different covenants in the Bible. Uh, it's also used as, as a descriptor for a brand of theology. It's the opposite of dispensationalism. Covenant theology is always... Reformed theology. The two are tied together. Not all Reformed theology is covenant theology. So I have different various levels of Reformed theology on certain issues, but I'm not in total take a Reformed position on everything. Calvinism and Arminianism. This, the viewpoints on the how and why of salvation. Most covenant theologians are Calvinists. So if you're a covenant theologian, you're a Calvinist. Reformed theology is closely tied to Calvinism. Dispensationalists can either be a Calvinist or an Arminian. If you are a covenant theologian, you are a Calvinist. If you're a dispensationalist, you can be either. So covenant theology is mostly concerned with soteriology is the doctrine of, of, la, or of salvation. Dispensational theology is primarily concerned with the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of last things. So our focus is different. We put the emphasis in a different place. Okay? So what am I? I'm a soteriologically reformed Calvinistic dispensational Baptist pastor. Does that make me inconsistent? Nope. When it comes to my doctrine of salvation, I buy into the reformed schema of the doctrine of salvation. Uh, my Calvinistic, yes, mostly because I'm soteriologically reformed. Those, those two are kind of tied together. Dispensational, yep, I'm premillennial. I should have put premillennial in there just for fun and pre-tribulation. Just try to get as many words in as possible. And a Baptist. Are there... Uh, are there covenant-leaning Baptists? Yes. I don't know how you can do that, though, because 
it, it boggles, Mark, Mark Dever boggles me as an amillennialist. I don't know how he is so strong on things like church membership when he, he buys into covenant amillennial theologi- theology, but he really doesn't talk about eschatology much. He just kind of ignores it like most covenant theologians do. Just, oh, we can't understand that stuff. It's not that important. So that, that describes me. That's who I am. So when you talk about reformed, uh, my cousin started to go to a, he called it a reformed church. He says, oh, we just started going to a reformed church. I started to ask him questions about it, and all it was was just a non-denominational church. It was like a baptistic non-denominational church. Like, that's not a reformed church. But his background was a, an Arminian-style church, and so for him, this was a huge change, so he calls it a reformed church. But people misuse those adjectives all the time, and then it just it makes it all confusing. Okay. Uh, I gave you a summary sheet, and then uh, if you go on to the next one, point number four, a couple of interesting examples. You can read through our uh, covenant view of baptism, why they believe that. Dispensational view or premillennial view of baptism is much simpler. Only those who have personally placed trust in Christ as Savior may be baptized, period. Look at the covenant view of baptism on the sheet before. Lots of lots of different ideas there covenant families and it takes the place of circumcision and should be infants born to parents in the covenant community and it's a sacrament and then helps cleanse sin helps to get the holy spirit going in your life premillennial dispensational view of baptism trust christ the savior baptize as a believer pretty cut and dry john calvin the very, by the way, John Calvin, Reformed, infant baptizer. The very word baptize, however, signifies to immerse, and it is certain that immersion was the practice of the early church. Thank you, Calvin. Why didn't you do it then? It's <laughs> a good question. Uh, here's some thing, um, impact on missions in evangelism. It's another little example for you. Covenant theology is more focused on developing covenant communities. It's comfortable with the household covenant. Uh, they talk a lot about establishing or bringing in the kingdom. The church does have a political impact. Social action is poverty, justice, health care is legitimate ministry in itself. Establishing social justice, that's, that's the emphasis. I read a book once, this church went out. One day they canceled their Sunday morning service and they went to a hillside in their community. They picked up trash and they planted trees and the whole idea was let's reclaim that hillside for the kingdom. Well, I'm all about planting trees and picking up trash but that piece of land is no more the kingdom of Jesus as it was before. You know, it's, it's silly when you begin to mix up your theology like that. Dispensationalism or premillennialism is more focused on personal salvation, making disciples or authentic followers of Christ, establishing local churches made up of baptized believers, churches to be separate from the state, not fused together, it's a spiritual ministry that may include social action due to compassion as a means of bringing the gospel. It's not our goal and our mission in and of itself. And then I completed, completed the chart that I left blank earlier on all the different things that it affects. And that, my friends, is all she wrote. John 3.16 of, uh, of covenant theology tying 
uh, the, <clears throat> the Old Testament is Acts uh, 738, where Moses is uh, uh, spoken of as having led the, the ecclesia in the wilderness, the church. Uh, would you, they're going to get that if we go back and forth. How would, how would you address that? By the meaning of the word? Or yes. How would you do that? <clears throat> that, that word was not well developed in the early church and until later, especially in the time of Acts. So it was just a general word meaning assembly. So it and doesn't mean, because tell, tell everybody what, what, what Reformed theology says. What tell, they believe that the, there was a church existing before yes. the church. They, they believe the church began with Abraham, that that was the start of the church. This covenant, this covenant pool of people started with Abraham. So then they would read Acts chapter 7 as being that word. But it, how would they respond to the future tense of, of Acts 16 when Jesus says, I will build my church? And then, as you put in your, rightly put in your notes, Acts chapter 2. By the way, in Acts chapter 2, where the church begins, there's, uh, there is a reference in Acts chapter 11. I can't give the verse, but there's a reference in Acts chapter 11 as, as a Peter recounts what happened in Cornelius' home. And he says something about the beginning. Isn't that, he uses that. Yeah, as it happened in the beginning. beginning. As it did in the right. beginning. So he makes a, a clear allusion back to Pentecost as yep. when the church began. So answer, what would they say about that future tense and how would they deal with that? Uh, you know, I actually don't know. Uh, I don't know if I've ever asked them before that. Yeah, uh, but there's, there's actually not, there's, there's not a set view on when the church started because they just see it. Some, some would even go back before Abraham. Yeah. And say it's just this it's this covenant community of people that sort of just kind of morphs as time goes from one thing to the next in continuity. So this is really, really good stuff. I just personally I love the metaphor of the pool. Mm. I loved that metaphor you gave. And uh, just it helps me as I understand these individuals I'm working. I don't know that they understand that metaphor. No, no. And I'm not trying to again, I'm not trying to sling mud at any in any group. I'm just telling you this is what they say, this is what they believe. It's just fact, uh, but it is concerning, and and it does you know I can look at them and say they're being consistent yeah. with with what they believe. I love that, and I also love the fact you said before one of the other breaks. You appreciate the fact. I mean, God, God's using some of these systems, many of these systems. I mean, men, Piper, uh, it doesn't matter if it's Piper or Dever or, or Keller. These men are great men of God, being used of God. Souls are coming to Christ under their ministries. Mm -hmm. and, and they don't necessarily cross teeth no. and eyes with us. I mean, even as we've talked about, I think I've met people who got saved as Roman Catholics, mm -hmm. like for real. That's yeah. it's, it's more rare because they end up leaning on works, but God is saving people in these different groups. But just people getting saved is not rationale or reason to, to continue forward. You know, it's not a, it, do, it shouldn't be a pragmatic reason for doing things the way you do it. It should always be good theology. We're done at 11.30, so that means we have about 14 minutes to just go back and forth with any other questions that you may have from what you've learned. You can direct them at Mike, and I'm just here to kind of be just a, I want to I want to read you a quick verse in Acts chapter 3. Um, I, kept, I kept putting emphasis on this kingdom idea that the, the kingdom is still a future thing, that Jesus is going to bring that kingdom. And so in, in my sentence where I described the purpose of history, God reestablishing the mediatorial kingdom by means of the nation of Israel. So God's using Israel in that. In Acts chapter 3, Peter's preaching to Jewish people. This is at Solomon's colonnade. He says, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. 
Now, the next thing he says is a purpose statement. He gives a purpose statement, a reason why. So he's telling Jewish people, repent, accept Jesus. And here's why you should do that. Verse 20. So that the seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's terminology to refer to the kingdom. Now we see it at the beginning of Acts. He calls it the seasons of refreshing. So Peter is giving the motivation to Jewish people. You need to accept Jesus so that God will send the kingdom. And he says, and he may send Jesus who's been appointed for you, Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoration that God spoke about. So Peter's actually saying to these Jewish people, believe in Jesus so that he will come back to establish the kingdom. That's what we're waiting on. And Peter tells them that. Now the, the preaching in Acts changed because it mostly went to Gentiles after that. But you can just hear in Peter's voice, it's like, guys, you know, he's, he'll still come if we believe. And he wants so bad for them to believe to, for Jesus to come back and bring the kingdom in. You had a question. No, I, I think they're wrong, but I can see how they're getting there. They're not, they're, they're, they're not, they're not stupid in terms of like how they're looking at the Bible. Like they, they, they're, seeing, they're seeing this differently. I think they're using bad principles for how they're getting there. But it is false doctrine. So they go to some specific New Testament passages where it talks about us being the seed of Abraham and some of those phrases, the Israel of God. And so they conclude then on the New Testament that we are Israel. Once you make that conclusion, then everything in the Old Testament in terms of promises given to Israel is up for grabs. So that's how they get there. Um, so it's important to go and look at those in the New Testament and, and discern what's being talked about here when it calls us children of Abraham. Do you have anything on, to add on that? There's different ways in the New Testament that were described. So we are, I see it as children of Abraham as it's described in terms of Abraham is the father of all of those who believe by faith for justification. He's the father. And then it goes through and dis distinguishes there's a genetic relationship to that and a spiritual relationship. Um, but it, it doesn't say that we've replaced, we've taken their place. So we do have a relationship there. We are, in a sense, children of Abraham uh, as those promises were given to Abraham in the covenant in the last phrase of that covenant says and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed so there's there's a spiritual line from the Abrahamic covenant that includes us there is another thing Mike I just came to my mind just now and there's uh, it's in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 I think it's verse 32 you can check me out on that but it's where there's a couple of interesting demarcations there he says give no offense to to um, the Gentiles, 
Israel, the Gentiles, and the Church of God. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read? That's right there. He makes a clear distinction in the New Testament between those three, those three pools. That's yeah. pretty interesting. <clears throat> he clearly differentiates between the good. Church and Israel right there. Yep, that's good. Yeah, as alien in, into this vine, which is based on the promises given to Israel. So it's like if, if he grafts us in and we get this level of blessing, how much more blessing would a natural branch have? You know, So that's language that he's saying. It's not, they're not done. Like They're going to be... That means that God cut off all the regular branches and he grafted us in as, as replacements. But if you read Romans 9 through 11, that's not where Paul goes with it. So, would, have you talked about, would a covenant theologian or somebody who believes that the church sort of replaces Israel in terms of Israel's cut off, the church is now it? What's the distinction, I guess, between that and somebody who would maybe say uh, the church doesn't replace Israel, but the church is Israel in that the true Israel that rejected Christ is apostate from Israel? Is that still covenant theology in that sense? So in premillennialism, there's different views on how much national Israel plays a part in the future. And so... You've got premillennialism that by, by nature is, is a move away from covenant theology, but inside of this realm of premillennialism, there are people that push the edge of this bubble over towards covenant theology and see that, that the church really is kind of the new Israel to some degree and that, that there is not much of a future for national Israel at all. So that's, that's where, and Pat asked me that earlier about the technical term is progressive dispensationalist. So inside this bubble, there's people over here that see a, a big future for national Israel and then people over here that don't see much of a future for them at all. That's, there's like, that's a whole area of study by itself. A couple more questions and we're done. I've heard you say that this is being recorded. Uh, yes, uh, audio recorded. I think so. Yeah. As long as that, he didn't turn that thing off, we're good. I went to the bathroom once. <laughs> How is it going to be available? I'll ask you that later. What's that? Yeah. All right, one more question from somebody who hasn't asked a question. Uh, let's thank Mike for a tremendous job. Of teaching. Yeah. Great job. Thanks. Really, really appreciated it. Really, really good stuff. By the good. way, that was 1 Corinthians 10.32. I, I said 11.32, I was off a chapter Yeah. So on that demarcation thing. So. Thank you very much. Appreciate letting me come Great here stuff. today. God and bless you. Yeah, God thanks, bless Soteria Church and what God is doing down the southwest South. side. Thank you so much.